Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Turkey Hunt's one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. Now, Pat Durkin. Are coyotes really killing and eating all the deer? Is it as bad as everyone thinks? No, it's not as bad as everybody thinks. Um, Why does everyone think it's so bad? Is it more fun to think about coyotes killing deer than other shit killing deer? Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but there's something about coyotes and something about wolves that really gets under hunter's skin. The you know you can you can show them research that shows like in Wisconsin, in northern Wisconsin, about five years ago they wrapped up this research, and the number one killer of fawns, you know, young, one fawns that basically hit the ground in the first three weeks of life are picked off. Can I guess by? Go ahead. Black bears. Exactly, exactly. It's anywhere from ten to twenty-five percent of those fawns that are being picked off by black bears. And a few guys will complain about it, but for the most part, they'll always default to the coyote. And you look at the numbers on this particular study, and this is probably a pretty representative study because they have all the major predators in this area. It was 6% of the kills were definitely tied to coyotes, 6%. Okay. And black bears, though, they had at least 10%, but it was more likely close to 25%. Because as soon as you got about a month out of the fawning season— because, you know, part of that 25% is these unknown. They weren't quite sure what got it because everything was basically cleaned up. Yeah. Gone. And But as soon as they got out of that, out of that first month, this is typically when the black bears are hitting them, that just dropped right off. Those unidentifieds dropped right off. Because they can get them up until they're able to get up. Yeah. Yeah, because the black bears, they probably aren't going to run very far to chase down a fawn. And once that fawn gets motoring, you know, they, they let it go. Now, have you ever killed a coyote, can I ask? 
I've only. <laughs> I'm guessing. I, I, my guess is no, because you call them coyotes. It could be. I never thought. And I found. I never thought in that. general, I found that people who have killed them call them coyotes. Well, my, mine are because I think they don't want it to sound so cute. And people uh, that have not tend to call them coyotes. Huh. I never thought. What do you of call that. them, Darren? I call them coyotes. coyotes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm more. I guess I'm more formal. Uh, you know, we've. You, but you might. But a, a historian was telling me that I might be right about that about killing him. No, 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 no. no he didn't. He didn't. Okay. He wasn't interested in that theory at all. But he, he, he didn't. He didn't think that was right. Just the history of calling them coyotes and coyotes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to answer your question, though. I shot one with a bow and arrow. And I shot one with a shotgun, and didn't get either of them. They both got away from me. Oh, yeah, it's a wounding loss, basically. Now, why, um, why were you shooting at him? That's a good question. Just because, uh, um, just because, man, man dislikes. Well, in both in both cases, is you know, it's it's one of those odd things that I can't really explain. I would never do that to a fox, a coyote. Yeah, I, I let the arrow go, and I, and I pulled the trigger on the shotgun. And my daughter was with me when I shot the one with the um, shotgun. We were turkey hunting, and she asked, "Well, why'd you do that?" Couldn't give her a good answer. Predator uh, control. No, I, I have I have no illusion about that. Yeah. See, I don't. Use, I don't generally <laughs> like. Um, I have, and the last one I shot at, we ate, but I don't shoot at him. The first time I ever came to meet Doug Duran here, and we're in. And right here in, in what Dirt Myth calls Casanova, Wisconsin. <laughs> Actually, a couple miles south of Casanova, Wisconsin. First time I ever came to visit, I got scolded by Doug because some coyotes come peeling through. I was on, a, we were doing a mooch, a drive, mm-hmm. and some coyotes peeled through, and Doug was a little shocked that I didn't take a poke at him. Huh. Do you remember I, that, Doug? I do remember that. And, I, and your reason for not doing it was not some, oh, they're just trying to make a living too or something. Because I didn't like know that. if deer were coming. That's right. 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 I don't want to go making, I don't want to go blouching and have the, yeah. you know. Uh, but no, I don't, ha- but, but, but I have, I don't touch them anymore. I'm kind of the same. I, I find them kind of interesting and I know that there are plenty of guys that are hunting them. And then I've listened to, uh, you talking with Dan Flores and, uh, and looked into that a little bit more myself. And it sounds like you shoot them and they're just, you shoot one that's being replaced by two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not even why I don't do I, my, my thing about it is I just don't like if I, if I wanted, if I had need for a coyote hide, right? Like if I was going to, if I had some, if my wife wanted something or I was going to make something for myself, I would definitely if, in the winter, get a nice one for, to use the pelt if I needed to, make have something made but it's like i just you know what you walk over there and i ate one i can tell you they're not like i'm not gonna get them for that reason <laughs> so you walk over and like oh there he is yep got him mm-hmm. do you know what i mean i just like yeah. i don't i don't think you're like really turning the tide on um unless you're like doing it in a very concerted way like in a very systematic concerted way i don't think you're like turning the tide on predation you'll know by like randomly yeah. now and then yeah. You'll never make a dent in them with a rifle, you know. Guys, I mean, it's like like just through I mean, you bumping go, into them, right? You you can go out and call them, go after them aggressively as you want, 
with yeah, a he's rifle. Saying, he's, you're saying I'm actively, actively predator after him. Yeah, you're coyote calling. Yeah. Doing like Doug has a scrap pile out here in the woods where he dumps bones and stuff. You could probably put those all the place and pound every coyote that comes in. And they're still, that's not going to make it make a dent. The guys that are really serious about coyote control and, and for deer management reasons, they pretty much are trappers. Yeah. They're, they're, they're getting out there in the spring. Anytime they can get them, especially, but spring though is a really good time to get them, I guess. And they'll, they'll just trap the shit out of coyotes. And then the guy says, as soon as you lay off and come back in a couple of months, it's like you never did. It's like you never trapped one. New ones have moved in. Yeah. They, they, they replace themselves. It's just a, a guy I know named Craig Harper, he's a professor down at Tennessee, he he always refers to it as weed control, trying to pull weeds. You can go out in the garden, pull weeds, pull weeds, get that garden cleaned out, and if you leave it alone for a week, come back, it's right back, everything up again. Yeah. And that's pretty much the way coyotes are. But you know what, someone, here's why, I want to get to the, well, well, we'll talk about this that we're done talking about. Now, I saw a new guy who was talking about why... You know, and we're in the Midwest talking about whitetails right now, but with him, I was talking about elk in the West. Why are people pissed about wolves? When they know that lions kill more elk calves than wolves, okay? Mm-hmm. In the area they were where they were doing work. He said, because lions have always been killing elk calves out here. And we've always had a sense that for every hundred calves, right, we're going to lose 30 to lions Mm -hmm. and that's just been something that's just been woven into the cultural fabric right when you're out in the woods you get this sense of seven out of ten cows right is packing a calf Mm -hmm. right and we kind of know that that's like the rate and our harvest statistics are built around that right we just get used to that but then you have some new additive thing which makes a noticeable change from what you've seen in your lifetime and your father's lifetime and it's additive, and you focus on that. So you're not focusing on the three out of ten, let's say, the three out of ten that lions are killing. You're kind of fixated on the one out of ten or two out of ten, the new things mm-hmm. killing, because that's this new thing you need to deal with. And so a lot of blame falls to it. And because coyotes, like in my own lifetime, have come onto the scene in so many states. Mm-hmm. The, like, the first cow I ever laid eyes on in my whole life, I didn't even know there were any around at the time, and it was, I caught it in a fox trap. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like the fox are gone in that area. It's just coyotes. Mm-hmm. It's like an everyday thing. If you're like, if you hunt around there, you're gonna, it's an everyday thing to see coyotes. And they were not around. Yeah. So then you have like some mortality, right? And all these other causes of mortality have always been around, but now there's like this new kid on the block thing. And it does get a lot of attention. Yeah. I, I can buy that because I know in Wisconsin again, and that's my base, people got mad at me when I point this out. But when I f- first started working in this industry uh, in the newspapers back in the 80s, there was no, there really weren't any wolves to speak of in northern Wisconsin. There's a handful of them. It's just like the mid 80s. And I've been covering the outdoors in Wisconsin all that time. I've never, I mean, I've done other things along the way, but pretty much my beats Wisconsin. And I always remember back in the 80s, you'd go to a public hearing, go to a public meeting up about deer, and people up north have always complained about not enough deer up north. And back then, they always blamed the Chippewa, the Chippewa Indian tribes. Yeah. They always... Because they were on a treaty that allowed them to do right, unregulated... Right. They, or what they, we regard as unregulated Yeah, hunting. they could hunt off their, off, off their reservation territory, so they... You know, were blamed every, they weren't registering their deer, they weren't doing this, all sorts of accusations. 
Well, then the wolf builds up in the 90s. And it was great hunting back then, right? Now everybody remembers it kicking ass. <laughs> Probably so. But <laughs> I've written a couple of times, and I'm not, I'm not doing it just to be a jerk, but I'm pointing out to people that, you know, 30 years ago, you guys always blamed the Chippewa for no deer. Well, now that the wolves are up there, now it's the wolves' fault, you know? So you're letting the Indians off the hook now. I guess they weren't such a big problem after all. Yeah. But then and I think my area where I hunt in Wisconsin is a prime example. You go up there, and the biggest problem with any animal, basically, is always their habitat. And where I hunt in northern Wisconsin is pretty much mature timber. There's not much in there for deer to really live off of. And so I go up there, and I my common joke around our camp is that that habitat's so poor around us, even if the wolves don't hunt deer there, because there's just nothing there to hold deer. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm not, I don't think, you know, I, we, But has it always been bad? Well, you since know. The, it, since it, the timber it, got mature. In my, in my friend's camp, back in the 50s, when his dad was there with his buddies and 40s, it was a pretty good, pretty good place. You know, the forest hadn't been cut over that long before that. Got you. And then by the 60s, and this guy's, uh, he keeps camp journals like, he makes, when you go to his camp, you got to write in his journal before you leave. And he keeps track of every deer killed that are basically back into the 60s. And his area pretty much has been bad, you know, for a long time. Since the logging stuff. Yeah, pretty much, you know, since, since I'd say the 70s for sure. But um, the thing is, too, though, I, look, I balance that out somewhat because his friends are mainly bird hunters. They deer hunt, but they're mainly bird hunters. Until guys like I came along in the 90, late 90s, early 2000s, where you really go out and just sit all day and, and hunt deer the way you know you almost have to. They didn't kill a whole lot of deer, so I'm not sure how representative that is. But then I've talked to other guys in the area, and that area we happen to hunt has always been a tough spot because it's, it's lost spruce, which deer don't really make much use of. So it, it's... I don't think I saw that in common, but then there's other parts in the north you go into, and the aspen's getting real mature. The grouse aren't all that, you know, basically, as you know, grouse, rough grouse and deer, if they're doing fine, usually they have good good young forest regeneration going on. Yeah. And if you don't have that, that those young aspens coming up. Well, especially in an area like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's northern forest habitat. You have to have that young growth, you know, and, but then you get down in this area too, you can make up for a lot of the shortcomings of that natural habitat with crops and other stuff that can pull them through. But there's even research now in Wisconsin showing that they're even getting winter loss in central Wisconsin, which is farm country, because the woods have been so overbrowsed and there's really nothing left in there. And you have clean farming practices with nothing left in the fields. They don't and, have good hideouts. Yeah, they have, they have no place to hide, no place to eat, basically. And, and so now they're seeing winter starvation in this eastern part of Wisconsin, south, I mean, central East central Wisconsin, central Wisconsin, and even parts of west central Wisconsin, you're seeing some winter loss now, which is never something that they worried about, you know, 20 years ago. Yep. Now, Doug, do you practice clean farm? Are you part of the problem or part of the solution? <laughs> I would say that I'm part of the solution for two reasons. One, because of our forestry practices, and we've got, you know, various <clears throat> age classes of, uh, of woods, but then uh, our ag land is in CRP. And those CRP fields are planted to um, clover, alfalfa, orchard grass, and then some of the edges have additional clover and that sort of thing. So that's great cover for not just deer, but uh, everything. for everything. Because you, you guys have, in this area, a deer overpopulation problem by some definitions. Absolutely. The, lead, the definition in your mind, just to put words in your mouth, the definition in your mind would be 
that you guys may be, um, it, it may be like, like disease transmission issues. There's enough deer where you could have disease transmission issues without getting into all that too much. What I was going to suggest, if you're serious about reducing the deer population, you can just make your farm real shitty. But then you're going to lose a lot of other wildlife. Well, yeah, fair enough. Uh, like you could do clean farming and 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 let and let everything get overgrown, and then there wouldn't be so many deer. You know, it's interesting uh, when I I know a fair number of farmers around here, and I know those guys are you know they're it's it's clean farming, it really is, and uh, some will refer to it as a desert. Not farmers, but other people. That's a desert once they've been you know out there. But I'm always amazed at the amount of deer that I'll still see in farm fields that it's corn stubble. And if there's stubble there, there's going to be some, something that they'll eat just like the cattle eat the fodder from the, the ears and that sort of thing. Um, uh, apparently, you know, picking through the bean fields and stuff too, but it's a kind of at different times of the year and then what's exposed and, um, you know, they'll work awful hard at it. Or you'll see them if we take that, take that right up around the, and, and look at those farm fields. Well, Joe, the guy who farms it up there, he's a hell of a good farmer. Yet, I mean, there'll be times we'll see 75 deer up there, you know, working on those fields. And all there are is grass strips and then it's corn and beans. So I get the, 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 the clean farm thing, but the clean farming thing, but then I see there that it doesn't seem to be the case. And I wonder if it's just, they've also attributed those practices to some of the declines in waterfowl that we saw back in the eighties and things Hmm. that the people weren't leaving Mm -hmm. enough that they're, that, that. We had waterfowl populations that had grown used to all the stubble. Leftovers. Yeah. And the, the clean farming practices was one of a handful of things that caused a lot of duck species to collapse. I wonder, uh, one of the things I noticed around here, and I, 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 I have to, I'd have to ask Joe about it. It's like he's my farmer reference all the time. They, they do a lot of uh, uh, spring... Um, grinding of the corn fodder and then baling it rather than in the fall. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's probably a matter of time and, you know, and those sort of things. But, um, he's the kind of guy who would leave it, uh, because he knows it's good for the wildlife for, the, you know, through the winter and then in the spring doing it. But, um, and if it dries out, you know, great. And, and I, and I know there's some rotation as to where they'll do that and where they won't, you know, they won't take the fodder off of each at that field every year in a you know every year because they want to put some of that organic matter back in but i also think that up there now and you know as we start talking about it and thinking about it that there's a lot of edge there you know there's there's browse there's some other things there so you know they're probably working through there and getting a little bit of everything you know what i mean yeah i'm with you yeah now pat um you're kind of like a dying breed in that you are a like a like a regional one of your jobs like a regional outdoor columnist mm-hmm. what happened to them all Got they it. all died yeah they died in the well the, you know the biggest the biggest change is um the way the newspapers went downhill and when i started off there was about um three or four guys in wisconsin who were full-time outdoor writers two were at the milwaukee journal one was at the Milwaukee Sentinel. There's one in Green Bay. There's one in Wausau. There's one in La Crosse. There's probably seven of them, I think about it. I had one growing up. The Muskegon Chronicle had a, I can't remember his name, Bob, I think. 
had like a dude. Now it seems like otherworldly that there'd be like a dude whose job it was to write about hunting and fishing opportunities, local wildlife politics, and that was his beat. Yeah, at a newspaper, yeah. and this guy had like a desk at a newspaper. Oh yeah, that that was to cover like, hey, the perch are in. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing, man. Like. Big yellow bellies. <laughs> Last week's meeting at the DNRC office. Well, well, my my um, I, I still get grumpy about when I when I see an outdoor writer at a newspaper not taking that beat seriously, and just writing about fishing roundups and um, doing the what I think is like not doing the hard reporting. Not not doing the hard reporting because you know. Yeah, but, but but I my understanding is is it in your well first sketch out like how how long have you been um. Doing like, uh, how long have you been a? What's the, am I using the right word when I say like a regional outdoor columnist? Like, what do you call it? What do you guys call well, it? Well, I'm a. I just call myself an outdoor writer, and but was, you're like a syndicated yeah, I'm, outdoor I'm, writer in, in, in the in, state in, of Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, and you yeah. focus. Yeah, the focus of my reporting and column writing is Wisconsin, and I've done. I've basically made my beat a statewide beat as much as I can. I've I'm centrally located right in the middle of Wisconsin, so I kind of keep an eye on And you things. tried to cover the whole state. I try, I try to cover statewide issues, and but, but I still find there's always those little local guys that do something that's really fascinating, and then I'll do stories, and I'll, I'll drive down a mass and sometimes for a story, whatever it might be. But I, I, um, that, that's only one part of my job now, because you can't make a living as a freelance guy in newspapers. You can make... Well, you, you could, but now you can't? I don't know if you ever could, because newspapers have never paid freelancers that much. And, and, but, you know, as newspapers declined and they started losing revenues, you know, advertising revenues, they just started cutting staff like crazy. So like, oh, I got to imagine that you're the first guy to go. Oh, you would be. You'd be one of the very first. Like, I know um, right now we're down to one full-time outdoor writer paid by a newspaper in Wisconsin. That's um, Paul Smith at the Milwaukee Journal. Is he barely hanging on? I have no idea. I, I don't know what his situation is. Is he a good writer? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Paul, Paul's a good, very good outdoor writer. But you know the pro- the problem is though, and he that, doesn't do like chip shop penny Annie. No, like, hey, perturing, no, he does no, other stuff too. He he, do, he does pretty good stuff. Yeah. I, I respect his work. And where I where I um where I've made my niche, you know, in outdoor writing, I think is covering issues as a columnist. Where I I like to always think that I give I give an opinion, but I like to think it's an, an informed opinion. It's not just off the cuff. I, before I give an opinion, I've done a lot done a lot of interviews, done a lot of reading. And I always hit the. I'm always sensitive about the word research because I think I work with guys who do scientific research. I know for them the research word is a real important word to them. They don't like you to use it just for basically saying you went on Google and typed in you know a Google search. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm kind of careful how I use that word research. But that's but but by learning how to do reporting work the way I did, you know, back in the '80s. I started discovering that most outdoor writers working in a national scene on the magazine front and elsewhere, most of those guys don't like doing interviews where you call people up or sit through a long day of seminars and take notes, record interviews, transcribe interviews, all the real oh, yeah. nitty-gritty work. What of- those guys do a lot of is they'll do a deal where like some company will host, right? They'll be like, oh, and they'll round up like 10 outdoor writers. And they'll be like, we're going to Texas to test uh, these new bullets here on on uh, wild pigs, right? Right. And then everyone goes down there, 
and they all shoot a wild pig with these new bullets, and they all go to their respective publications, and they all write an article, and you can tell because in there they'd be like, "I was with, I was hunting with, you know, Bob's the the head of marketing and development at Bob's yeah. Bullets," and that is a lot of outdoor writing. Well, not I don't know if that's so much anymore. I mean, it really, really, was, it really was back in the '90s. Well, you know, there are, there are the, the gun writers and the ammo type guys that still do that a lot, but I was I never fit in with that group. I mean, I yeah, no, it is. Yeah. I think of it as like gun writers. Yeah, yeah. Gun, gun writers do. I still there's probably still enough work there where they get those kind of those kind of things to come down. Plus, they know what they're doing. You know, I like to hunt. I don't really. I've got a lot of different deer rifles. I kind of like deer rifles. But I don't really know the specs on them as far as, you know, which one they're ballistic, the ballistic coefficient stuff. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know anything, anything about that. You just know that. it's old Bassie and it <laughs> shoots straight. Yeah. Shoots where yeah. I point it. Yeah. yeah, and that kind of stuff, I, I like the look of a good wallet stock rifle. And I like the old lever action 308 um, Savage, those kind of things. I, I find that interesting. But to go on these, um, I think most of these companies figure out pretty quickly what your strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah. And they'd probably have me on one of those kind of outings and go, don't ever bring that guy back. He's just not going to, he doesn't get this stuff. Yeah, he was doing research the whole time. Because <laughs> it, it just wasn't, wasn't, wasn't up my alley. Yeah. And, and the magazine, I used to edit Deer and Deerning magazine. This is back in, I got hired there in 91, left there in 2001. So you were the editor-in-chief there for 10 yeah, years. Yeah, about 11 years. But back up first, because yep. I, I still don't understand. So what like, what was your first outdoor writing job? Um, newspaper. Yeah. And at a specific newspaper. Yeah, but, but I was Did you study journalism? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, but you came out of the Navy. Yeah. I, I was in the Navy. Were you a journalist in the Navy? No. My, my dad told me Stars to- Stars and stripes? <laughs> That's always one of those stories I enjoy talking about. But when I was 19 years old, I decided I was going to go in the Navy. And in those days, I decided I'd follow my father's footsteps. He was a firefighter. In the Navy? No, no, in in the Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, I'm here. sorry. No, that's okay. But Dad encouraged me to go in the so Navy. So your old man hadn't been in the Navy? No, he was in, he was in the Coast Guard. Okay. And in the Army, but he was in the Coast Guard Reserve, and he knew enough about the military to knew if you want to get firefighting training, you go in the Coast Guard, or the Navy, because they t- when a ship's on fire, you better get that fire out. Yeah, you want that shit out. You want to <laughs> hurry. So so they really you can't run outside. <laughs> <laughs> so really, that's that's one of the things I really liked about the Navy was how every ship was basically its own little city yeah, and yeah. it had to have all the, all the services. So, so my, my dad, when I went in the Navy, he was telling me, he's looking at all the recruiting stuff. He says, instead of doing this firefighting training, cause I was going to be, I was what was called then a hull maintenance technician. They taught you firefighting. They taught you damage control, welding, all these great skills. My dad looked at all this stuff and he says, you should take this journalism training because they have, they train you to be a journalist. The said, Navy would. The Na- Navy had. Why would they do that? Well, because they have people. They have they have, they have press releases on ships, and they oh, have okay. little ship newspapers, and gotcha. especially the bigger ships have um, regular publications. I don't know if they do now, but it's probably all internet now or wire based type stuff. But my but I was nineteen. I knew everything, so I said, "No, I'm gonna go off and do this. You know, damage control. Stay work. true to firefight. Yeah, yeah. But then by the time I got out of the Navy, which is five years. I realized Dad was right. My strength was was writing and editing, and I, I was a lousy welder. I understood damage control, but I realized, ah, oh, God, the skills I have, I'm getting bored doing this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I ended up being a locksmith for my final three years in the Navy. I got trained as a locksmith, and so I was breaking in the safes all the time for in these little wardrooms on, on Navy ships. And so you like so the ship. <laughs> 
has a locksmith. Oh, yeah. Oh, they, uh, <laughs> well, it's a little city, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, Everybody I mean, gets locked well, out of the see, boat. <laughs> well, I, I was on a... I was on what's called a, a destroyer tender. It's a big repair ship. Yeah. And so, like, our job, basically, we'd, we'd pull into a port, then all these destroyers and cruisers would pull up alongside of us. And you'd pick all the locks. And I'd go over there and do all the locksmith work. You know, <laughs> people locked all their rooms, locked out. I mean, my biggest job ever was I spent Christmas Day in 78 on a submarine all day because the duty officer lost the key ring to the, to the submarine, every, every key that went around that sub. So I spent all day replacing all these these keys. But to get back to your story. So I mean, you say 1978. Yeah. So it was like a war-free period. Oh, I, I, I had it perfectly. It was right after yeah. Vietnam. And when I was getting out, it was... You didn't even have to do Grenada. No, I, I missed... <laughs> missed that hotbed. <laughs> the closest I came to anything interesting was we evacuated, we helped evacuate a bunch of people out of Lebanon. You know, it's like my, my five years in was from 75 to 80 and when I was getting out, it was during the Iran, the Iran hostage crisis. Yep. And so you had to, a little bit of you know, worry about where that would lead, but eventually it all calmed down. But I, I never had to do anything interesting. And so I, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always proud of the fact I served the Navy because I really I enjoyed it. I didn't want to make a career out of it, but I enjoyed it. And, yeah, as, and, our friend, as our friend uh, Rourke says, you, you earned your seat at the table. Yeah. The table being America. Yeah. And I, and I I believe in that kind of stuff. I like public, I believe in public service, all those kind of things. I I encourage my daughter, oldest daughter, when she um, was heading off to college, she asked me about the Navy, and I I was told her I said I didn't want to make make a career out of this, but I liked it. I liked that sense of community, that sense of service. But she's career now. And she's career. She's been ten years now, and she's a she's now a, a doctor in the Navy, a, a nurse midwife, I mean, basically the equivalent of a doctor. And so I'm real proud of that. And, but, you know, by the time I got out of the Navy, though, I, I had so many people tell me, they'd read my letters, because this is, I actually bought a typewriter in the Navy, a manual typewriter, which I wish I still would have kept, you know, and I, I typed all my letters, because I, I learned how to type, and I, I cranked out letters to everyone, anyone that would write to me, I'd write them back. And I, by the time I got out, Because you were learning to write? Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you start having people tell you that, when I read your letters, I feel like I'm right there. And I... Oh, well, maybe that means something. Well, I got when I got out, and I, I instead of following my dad's footsteps, I went off to college and got my degree in journalism. And then I, by the time I was um, about in my junior year, I started working for the local newspaper in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, as a local sports writer, which was kind of like a athletics. Jo- yeah, because it was anyone who knew me knew it was a joke that I was actually covering high school sports because I never had any interest in in, in most of the sports except for the Packers, you know, the Green Bay Packers. I'd Liked, I, you I still like the fact. Oh yeah, I covered them for two or three years, and it was miserable because it was. I like being a fan. I don't like being a, you know, working on a beat where you're covering the team, uh, team that you can't cheer for. Because why do you guys like? I mean, not that. I mean, like specific. Like everybody likes their team, but why is it that you guys, that people in Wisconsin, are so fired up about the Packers? Did they just win the Super Bowl or something? Well, they won. They won it four times, Steve. But, did they win but, recently? No, not not since 2010. Oh. But they're always competitive, and in the last twenty years, we've been spoiled. We've had you know incredible quarterback in the last twenty years. But to answer your question, Wisconsin people, Doug's, D- Doug's yawning. You don't want to get into the Packers, Doug, because you no, don't give a shit. I, not until it gets cold and shitty outside, and then in, you know December I start watching. Well, no, because you guys are telling me that that's the perfect day when the Packers are playing. That's the day you can hunt everybody else's farm. <laughs> <laughs> like if you kind of, if yeah, I didn't kinda, think we were going to talk about. If you've that. been kind of curious about hunting <laughs> someone else's property, do it while the Packers are playing because you damn sure not going to run into the guy. 
and then you can go and shoot some deer off his land. Uh, you had a question earlier, it looked like, when you were talking about the Navy. I, yeah. I got to move on from all this. I, yeah. I don't want you to, we're in Doug's, Doug's farmhouse. I don't want to bore Doug in his own damn farmhouse, so we're well, going to get it, away from this. It, it, I've known Pat for, I don't know, a while, and, and uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years or something like that, and uh, we've, had, we've talked about all kinds of things, but I guess I've never really heard the whole Navy story before. And what I'm really curious about was... You didn't know he was a locksmith in the Navy. I didn't know he was a locksmith in the Navy. I do about... The, you know a guy your whole life. But uh, I, I wondered about your father. You hear you're, you're telling your father that I'm interested in becoming a firefighter and all that, but yet your father's going, uh, so he discouraged you from no, being No, he, he encouraged me to um, go into firefighting. But he, I should have finished that story, yeah. That's a good point, Doug. What happened... When when um when I came that came that juncture where I had to choose, Dad's advice was to go into the journalism school the Navy offered because he said to me and he was right. He said that every, the Navy teaches everyone firefighting skills because everyone in a fire uh. has to has to respond. Yeah. And, and Dad had been through the Coast Guards training and, and he'd been through probably he's he probably been to Navy actual Navy firefighting schools. Because the Coast Guard will, will help out with the Navy stuff and they'll use the Navy facilities. So dad probably knew all that stuff. Hmm. But again, you know, because I was 19, I thought I, thought I was smart and that, you know, well, I know what I want to do. I just blew off dad's advice and came to realize, you know, like you I said, be a, writer. Like a couple of years, well, I, you know I should that, have done that, that. That quote, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the, uh, you know, fire hydrant. So I, I, uh, I've never met. All right, I want to move on. Oh, go ahead. Oh, let go me ahead. please finish. Please. Right, Thanks. Yes. Okay. So I've never met Pat's dad, but he's a uh, a famous character in, in Madison. Uh, he was the oh, fire yeah? chief and and uh, really interesting guy. Oh, and, so he's like a high level fireman. He oh, was, he was the fire was chief in Madison during the sixties. Oh, I got stuff. you. Yeah. Okay. I thought he just hated fire. Just wanted fire to be put out. And I thought, you know, in the stories that I've heard about him, he's a bit of a character, you know, and and uh, I I just kind of thought that. Um, maybe he was just saying, sorry, son, it's no, not no, for you. No, dad actually told me, I'm not, I'm not making this up. Dad actually told me that of his four sons, that he thought I was the one that was most, most personality wise, most cut out to be a firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I never quite knew what hey, he Red, meant. Is that true? What is, what is the personality? Okay. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, oh. just things like not, not being afraid to go up a ladder and not being afraid to hang on to shit and just, you know. Yeah. yeah. Stick so, your nose in there. Yeah. yeah exactly. Rescuing maidens in distress well, and whatnot. He thought that. He thought <laughs> you, were the, that. you were that guy. <laughs> so then you got, you, you, okay, <laughs> then you became, so then, and I want to skip writing about sports because okay. that's not, that's not interesting. I, I agree. So you wrote about athletics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, then you, then, then you became a professional outdoor writer when? Um. Where I, where I could concentrate on full-time wasn't until I got to Deer and Deer Running Magazine. Oh. And, but, but at the Oshkosh paper, what I did, because it's, this is a small, you know, like a mid-sized city in Wisconsin, about 50,000 people, and the newspaper couldn't staff a full-time outdoor writer. But they let me basically be a half-time outdoor writer, and then I also ran the week, I was editor of the weekend newspapers. I also covered the education beat for a while, you know, the school board, that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. But I... The reason I, I I should just say though real quickly the reason I went, went on the sports desk at first was because I knew that was the quickest route to the outdoor page. Oh, yeah, is that right? The, yeah, the sports okay. sections almost always that have legitimizes the page. it in my eyes. Yeah. If that matters to you, because well, it was yeah. it was um that that was my my ulterior motive was to get into the outdoor page, and eventually I got control of the outdoor page, and I I really worked that beat now because my my dream was to 
use that platform there to get the Milwaukee Journal's eye and go to go down and become the Milwaukee Journal's outdoor writer. Because you grew up hunting and fishing. Yeah. Yanni, at what point did you become so bored? And making notes. Oh, that's what you're doing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so at that point then, because you we're going to syndicate. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah, my my syndication though then start till I actually start working at Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, and <clears throat> Deer and Deer Hunting I was lucky when I first went there. It was owned. It was a neat magazine because it was started by local guys up in Appleton, Wisconsin. It's two guys. It was. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was started in Appleton, Wisconsin in seventy seventy seven by two guys, and they they started off their magazine. It was called. They had this um, traveling roadshow. Basically, they go to high schools and civic groups and do presentations of white tailed deer. And they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. They they put speakers up in trees and blow noise to see how a deer would respond to it. And so they're like they're like doing their own like shoestring in their own exactly. deer research. Exactly. That's and they plus they're the first guys to really start actually going and digging out scientific research and putting it to practical use for hunters. And that was their tagline. The magazine. is the magazine still published? Yeah. Yeah. You were there ten years. Yeah, eleven years. Yeah, and and I I really enjoyed it and. It gave me opportunities that I never would have gotten anywhere else. Because it, it gave me a one of the things I really got out of it that was a big benefit that made me realize how much I liked, as boring as it can be, sitting at these different um, scientific seminars and waiting for that that little nugget to come out of some college kids' research on deer yeah. that they could use in a magazine. It's because like part of your job was just to cover all research pertaining to white-tailed deer. Yeah, yeah, and. and Especially this stuff, the magazine's tagline was, and it probably still is, practical and comprehensive information for white-tailed deer hunters. There you go. And that was right up my alley. I like that. I, I See, like, I, I've always found that I, I love deer hunting, and that's the number one thing. You walk in my house, you know, this guy's a deer hunter. That's all, I, all he does. But I realized early on that as much as I love deer hunting, I'm not – a predator to waste. I've met guys in that, through that magazine that they're predators. They know how to kill deer. They, yeah. They're good. And I, that's one thing I really love about what I do is I get to meet guys, whether hunters or fishermen, that if you think you're a good hunter and fisherman, you're jealous of some of these guys you see on TV and wherever it might be, I hope that sometimes they really respect the fact that these guys really are, in many cases, better than you are at, at deer hunting and better than you are at bass fishing or walleye fishing. And yeah, but that pisses people that off. Pisses people off because people like. I always be reading magazines and people will goof on. People be like, "Well, goof on dudes like me who like, like do TV about hunting." Like, oh, he's like, yeah, but not many other people get to go out as much as we go out. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're in an occupation where you're hunting, where, where you're spending 150 plus days a year actively out in the woods hunting and fishing, you're probably going to see some things and learn some things. Oh, yeah. I mean, just. You could be the biggest knucklehead in the world, but something's going to rub off mm-hmm. on you, yeah. and that amount expo- of, of exposure. And, and, and the, you take that on like you, you, a 10-year career doing that. At the end of that, you have seen a ton of shit happen in the woods. Yeah, and a lot of these guys that got good at, like in my, in my, in my generation, there's guys like, um, oh, he's older than me a little bit, but like Miles Keller was just, I'm not sure how he's doing these days, but the guy could, could really go out, find, he could go out in a new area, look it over, figure out pretty quickly how to hunt deer in that area. Greg Miller, would, would back in the 60s and 70s, would, was killing 
really nice deer in northern Wisconsin. And a lot of guys didn't know big bucks existed up there. Yeah. And there's guys like that. And, they, and what I always find fascinating about some of these guys I've met over the years, I hunted with, they can't tell you a red pine from a white pine from a cedar. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. they know how to kill deer. They know how to line things up and figure out what's going on. I've heard people others say that. Guys say that, like, talking about some, like, whitetail expert and being like, and, and saying, that some bitch didn't know the kind of tree his tree stand was in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he, he didn't need woodsmanship. He yeah. knew how to hunt whitetails. Yeah, and the, the point I make is, yeah, well, wolves don't, they can't tell trees apart either, but they, they probably figure out habitat. You don't know pre- how they conceptualize trees. Well, I don't, I do They probably don't do the Linnaean binomial <laughs> nomenclature, but they, but they might conceptualize trees in some way. Yeah, like, I, I, I wouldn't doubt one bit they figure out real quickly when they walk into a, go through, cruise through a section of woods. Which which ones will bear fruit? Which ones yeah, won't? Productive and yeah, not productive. I mean, yeah, they they. It's like you've mentioned in the past. Hunters look at creek bottoms a whole lot differently than somebody else going by in a car. Yeah, you know, it's just it becomes part of your. You know, they they won't live long if they can't walk into part of a woods real quick and figure out how this thing works. Hey, this yeah, when I was trapping, time. I couldn't go over a culvert without slowing down or backing up. <laughs> yeah, 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 I had to inspect every bit of water every time. Yeah, you know, and that's that's where I. I love meeting those kind of people, and I, I learned real quickly to pay them respect for that. That you know, I, I might know more about some guy's research project or, and how it turned out, and I might be able to give them a lot of facts they'll they'll blow off. You know, as far as you know, like we talked about earlier about coyotes, and then coyotes are, are an interesting subject because all this country they're having different impacts on deer in different different levels. You know, there's there's areas in northeastern Minnesota like talking before about um, the idea that they kind of accept a certain amount of predation in some area because they're used to it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you go up to northern Minnesota and you look at the research going back into the 60s, you know, fawn survival through that first year, it was like in the 27% range often, as regularly, because it's a harsh environment. Winter would kill, kill them off. They'd, they'd come through the summer, okay, never make it, th- never make it out of winter. And 27, 30% survival, you know, for that first year was not uncommon. So what's it around here, Doug? We uh, something like one point one fawns per doe survive so you have because a, you we have, have so many twins, you know. I got you. And it's you know, I mean, you lose a few. So but, very good recruitment. Yeah, yes. yeah. And because there's parts of um, South Carolina right now where they had like point four, you know, for uh, fawn recruitment. One point four. No, no point four, like zero point four. What's the reason for that? Because right, well, because right now there's areas of the south in South Carolina, some of these other southeastern states, they never known coyotes really until recently. The deer really haven't figured oh, them so out. Oh, so they haven't figured out. Figured this out thing's going to kill my yeah. fawn. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. When we kicked off as a little teaser, I said, "Are they really killing all the deer?" You said, "No." Well. I, I'm some guy in South Carolina's pulling his hair out. Right? That's kind of why. That's kind of why I circle back, Steve. Because oh, because you want to get. It. But I want to get into it too. But I need to clear something up just for my own understanding. Okay. Because I honestly don't know this yet. Hey, man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week, and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting. You know your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use but now you use rocket money and does all of that for me 
I'll tell you, this this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch, and they lure you in with a one month trial, and you're like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll do the one month trial, then I'll come back and cancel, it, then I can watch this whole thing, and then like you don't, you forget about it, and then and then a year goes by and you've been paying these guys twelve bucks all year, and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand times more. If you got a family and you got people that rely on you, you need to take life insurance seriously. And Policy Genius is the country's leading online insurance marketplace. So with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars in coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your life insurance policy, you know, that you get at work may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. Policy Genius gives you unbiased advice from a licensed expert support team. Now, this is super convenient, right? Because a lot of times, you know, something like life insurance, you're just going to put it off because you're like, when will I ever have time to do that? I don't even know who to talk to about it. Well, this helps you do it online. Okay, again, you're comparing options from top companies, all right? Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. I do want to talk. I want to talk about a lot of that. But I also understand this. I'm, just under, I'm still tripped up, and, and, I, and maybe no one else in the world is, on, on the, the, the demise of the outdoor columnist okay and and as a way i want to understand that i think it might be helpful if i understand the survival of an outdoor columnist yeah so when you start doing that so so you went to deer and deer hunting mm-hmm. and became the editor-in-chief right and that was a national publication right became yeah. a national publication yeah. but how did it wind up being that you write a Wisconsin article about wisconsin and it appears in a bunch of different newspapers in wisconsin um the way i did it 
I, when I went, work, went to work for Deer and Deer Running Magazine, I was lucky because back then I still was independently owned. And the owners, I said to them, you know, I explained to them that I really like newspaper work. I like newspaper columns. I like writing that weekly column. It's something I really took a lot of pride in. And I asked them, would, would you mind if I kept writing it? I won't do that work. I'll do it at my own time on the weekends and at night. Okay. But this is, this is important to me. Is this something that I, I like doing? And th- they agreed. And then I, um, when I, the company I bought out the magazine about, I was at Deer and Deer on me a year and a half and we got bought out. Well, the company that bought us out wanted me to drop the column. They didn't like did, did the guys that sold it make a lot of money when they sold it? Yeah, I think they did. They did. They, yeah. they count pretty good. So, good. but, but, um, it, so like, Along the way, though, I started. What I did at first was I had a woman um, who was trying to launch her own syndication service. It, you know, she was based in Mass, and then she asked me if she could pick up my outdoor column as part of her package. I so, got you. So she she um, pitched it to a couple different newspapers, like the Wisconsin State Journal, and back in those days, Racine, the Racine newspaper picked it up, Oshkosh picked it up, and uh, Waukesha, another town over by, by Milwaukee, picked it up. And then eventually I had it in Eau Claire and then they dropped it. I, I, you know, it's not all sugar and spice either. A lot of them, you know, about two or three of them dropped me. But then over time, though, my net game was right now I'm at 17 newspapers around Wisconsin that carry my column. Right now? Right now. You're shitting me. Oh. No, really? I know there yeah. were 17 newspapers in Wisconsin well, anymore. <laughs> now, when Doug, so when I, when Doug, I can't remember if it was after or before I met you, Doug was talking about your work in Wisconsin and how people in Wisconsin are so serious about deer and deer hunting. Do you know this statistic? I can't remember what it is, but that like Texas has four times as many deer. God, I wish I knew how this went. Texas has four times as many deer, twice as many people, but half as many hunters or some shit like that. Hmm. I'm not sure how they're, I don't, I don't know their numbers in Texas. It was just about how dudes in Wisconsin hunt yeah. deer. Well, I, if you look, I think Wisconsin's population is about 7 million, six, six, seven million, someplace in there. Would you like me to fact check that? You could, but it's, it's, um, I think you have something to do over there, Doug. A really neat piece of research, you know, from about 10, no, about 20 years ago. That's, he's now a friend of mine, um, Tom Heberline. He made a comment in his, he, he was a sociologist and he'd study hunting and hunting motivations, these kind of things. And he always would say of, of Wisconsin, he said, in, in Wisconsin, you either are a deer hunter or you sleep with a deer hunter. Yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't, and he wasn't exaggerating. He was, he was, he some was, do both. <laughs> some do both. We multitask, you know. And, but you have, you have, you look at an average Wisconsin household, it's unusual not to have a family with some deer hunter somewhere in that family, you know, yeah. immediate family. And what Doug was talking about when he was telling me that is he was saying that, um, not that you get like, I don't know if you get actual death threats, but I think like as a joke, he was saying Pat Durkin gets like, you know, people mad enough where they wouldn't be surprised that they would give you a death threat over whitetail politics. Oh, oh whitetail politics is vicious. And it's, 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 not, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I always say a deer make people stupid. It makes people stupid and mean sometimes. Deer. And, and especially um, if you want piss off a group of people real fast it's, it's deer hunters they, they um they can be very what very would be tough. a thing that you found would piss off deer hunters um basically like you write a column about like like 
obviously wolves is going to piss wolves piss piss them off piss deer's hunters and if, disease if, pisses deer hunters off um not disease somewhat not not as much as like baiting baiting really is device of divisive issue is it yeah and people like so me, frame for me an article let's say you said i'm gonna go piss off wisconsin's deer hunters i will write an article about this subject and frame it this way well what would be like the most it, divisive thing you could say? Well, right now? I'll say, I'll, I'll try to address that question, but I will say that I've never written a column, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I've never written a column with the intent of pissing someone off. That's just not how I work. I, but, but I will write, a, write but an opinion. It, but you had but, to have done it in anticipation. Oh, definitely. You, you know, if you bring this topic up, whether it's in polite society or not, people, some people are going to get mad and write, and write a rotten letter to you. And bias figure, again, I, this is another one of my core beliefs is that I look at my writing from the newspaper as, a, as something I do as kind of a public service. I get paid for it, but I really believe in putting information out there. And if they don't want to believe the information, that's up to them. I can't change their mind because, you know, people have their, their, their once they have an, an attitude towards something, you're not going to change their mind. But I think it's important to find the information and I hate to use the word vet because, you know, I don't know what really, how do you go about vetting besides talk to a lot of people and finally get to a point where you think this, this makes sense. This is factual and put it out there. And I, and then, yeah, but, that, but that's an interesting point to bring up right now because we're sort of engaged in this big cultural debate about like what, is, you know, this whole, I mean, I, I don't even want to say it. F-A-K-E news. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're like really caught up in this. Well, what is, Right. Like, can anything be factual or listen, I think on some things there is on, on some things you can, you can achieve a scholarly consensus. Mm-hmm. Okay. On some things, a scholarly consensus or an academic consensus could be evasive, but there is a way to present a contentious argument in a way that is transparent about what is known like explain what is the where does the scholarly consensus end Mm -hmm. what direction do you feel based on like a reasonable amount of work things might be going when you get beyond the known facts and not known facts right Mm -hmm. and be open about the things that might prove you to be wrong I'm not ready to give up on this idea culturally. Oh, me either. That there's a way to present information. And it's like, because we don't know, let's just have it be as deceptive and, and, and as wrong as possible because we don't know. Uh, I, I, I really firmly believe, and I still think most people think this way, that they still want facts. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people out there that want to joke around about science not being... An alternate fact. Yeah, and, I, I, and that's... that's you know, that's BS. There's really smart people out there that you can dig up their stuff and you can look back in, in you know, 30, 40 years of research and see it. This stuff keeps lining up and lining up and lining up. It, we, we got this. This is, this is the way it is. Yeah. You, and, know what, I, you know what would frustrate my old man about issues of what we would call fact is he was frustrated with anything that, the, that our understanding would evolve. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if under if your understanding of something evolves over time, he didn't see it as being a natural process. Hmm. He saw it as the minute a position evolved, 
changed. Like our understanding was enhanced. Mm-hmm. He then thought, well, I'm going to disregard the entire system that even made this. Hmm. So you could say like, I mean, take it, even if it was a matter of like human evolution. Okay. So you have some idea about human evolution, you know, organisms change over time. Corn used to be the size of your pinky. Corn is now real big. Like an organism changes over time based on certain pressures. But he, he would get into some issue of like, like, I don't know, human, human evolution is almost too controversial to, to demonstrate my point. Let's say we're talking about what kills deer fawns. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have an understanding that, that, uh, black bears kill deer fawns. Then someone will come up with a thing that says, well, you know, we never looked at bobcats and now we're looking at bobcats. We realize that bobcats are a significant killer of deer fawns. And he'd be like, but I was told that black bears do it. Now, never mind, no one knows shit. Yeah. Well, you know, because like he hated the idea that you would have to sort of stay tuned all the right. time as new things came in. And that when new things came in, it wasn't that we were dismissing the body of knowledge. It's we're engaged in this activity that is not perfect and changes over time, but we're just trying to maintain an understanding of the world that we live in. Yeah. This friend of mine, Heberlein, has a great saying about research and the whole idea of trying to improve our knowledge, improve our understanding of things. He makes this comment that he said, all, all research is either trivial or wrong. Either it proves what we already know, which is trivial, yeah. or it proves what we'll never believe. <laughs> you know, and, and I can think in deer hunting, it's constant. I mean, like we were talking, this research earlier about... Oh, yeah, the article you would write, that was, I was the article that would piss everybody off. Right. And all you got to do, in many cases, with, with, with a certain crowd, is go back and dig up the, the final results of some recent research, which everyone was clamoring for when it was like this. There was a great study that was done by the Wisconsin DNR from about 2009, 2010 through about 2013. Looked at fawn survival, looked at overwinter survival in two different areas, one up in northwestern Wisconsin, one in northeastern Wisconsin, just north of me. And what was really interesting in the, in the farm country of eastern Wisconsin, right above me, the number one killer of, of the fawns was uh, f- 14% were being killed by winter starvation. Okay. You know, and no one thought deer were starving at f- starvation in, in those days. I mean, in just recent times, you just thought that wasn't happening. And you look at um, what, what else is killing them? Well, road kills are about getting about 4 or 5% of them sometimes. And, and, but then all these things were done, all this really good information it was all released. People like me wrote about it. People like, and then I got people writing to me saying this, this is all bullshit. You know, this is just the DNR spinning their fast because what, the thing they didn't like was because in northwestern Wisconsin where there's wolves, wolves were not found to be much of a predator at all for fawns. And they thought it was a cover-up. Yeah, they just thought it was a cover-up. So, so they have this research. They didn't like the way it turned out, so they disregard it. They did the same thing with, um, they did a, DNR did a really intense sociological research um, into uh, public attitudes toward wolves. All the people who don't like don't like wolves, which is a lot of them, were convinced that when they do this research, we're going to find out that Wisconsinites really don't like wolves. Even though, especially the ones um, they knew the people down in southern Wisconsin who don't deal with wolves will, will like them. Those are the people who like them the most, right? And, and, that, <laughs> and, and yeah, that's what I say, New and, Jersey cat ladies. And, 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 <laughs> the person like least likely to like you know. Well, and that's that's very true. That, I'll get to that though, but you know the, the thing they found though is even in wolf country, the majority of people still overall supported wolves. But to find like, 
define like wolves. Well, that's 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 a good question. That's a good good point. You know, and basically, it's the fact that like, I don't dislike I don't dislike wolves. I love them. I think I think I love that, all kind. I like I, I like all I like all wildlife, including, and I have a special place in my heart for the wolf. Does it mean you like them or di- like what does that mean? Well, like if if I like them there, and I like them to be managed by the state, and I have and I believe based on a considerable bit of research that we have a sustainable population in the Northern Great Lakes that can be managed as a renewable resource. Does that put me in liking or not liking camp? Oh, that's it. puts you in the liking. That puts me in the like, liking put, camp. Like, I'd be in the liking camp, too, because I actually drew a, a wolf tag in 2012 when they first issued them, and I, and I found out real quickly that I didn't, I didn't know enough about wolf hunting to, to be very effective at it. But I... But you still be counted as a liker. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, good. But, but I should say, though, I think, I think the way they... Um, they worded it in this in this research was um, basically one of the one of the things was do you want more wolves right now as the wolf wolf numbers we have right now is that adequate is it inadequate is it too many is it too too few yeah and most people like I think it's like in the sixty percent range thought oh things are okay the way they are they, they didn't have a problem with the, with the wolf numbers whereas a lot of the hunters don't want that many wolves they, you know the hunters would say you know. DNR says there's 700 walls. Well, it's more like 2,000. Yeah. So I I always ask them, well, where do you get your number? I, mean, I can tell you how the how the DNR got their number. I can show the, show you the survey, show you that 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 field work that was done to get that number. So where do you get this 2,000 number? You know. But 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 and then. But hold on a minute. Yeah. I know we're getting distracted a lot, but okay. we had a we had a guest um right on this year podcast, mm-hmm. Frank McMahon, right? who runs uh, the USGS grizzly bear program uh-huh. in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, you ask him, how many are there? He'll give you a number and you'll say, but probably more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's 632, but probably more. And like, why did you just tell me 632? Because that's the model we use. Mm-hmm. But we know that that model has changed. We haven't updated the model. There's mm-hmm. almost certainly more. But, but I said, but if I put a gun to your head, and said, how many are there? What would you say? 632, but probably more. Uh, to a, to, but, a, um, to a, a, a wide margin more. Well, so that's the thing I'd say. Well, what's this wide margin? Because it depends on how you're modeling them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you might have a model, like, like in this case, and I hate to go way back, but here's what happened in this case. Mm-hmm. When they modeled out how many they had, it was based on, it was based on the, the, the home range of females Mm -hmm. okay knowing that females had some fidelity to their home range and were generally intolerant of other breeding age females Mm -hmm. near them and that model was drawn up at a time before that model was drawn up at a time when they hadn't really dispersed across suitable habitat Mm -hmm. so what they found over time is that they're more comfortable living closer together they don't quite know how much though so when they model it out they come up with a number but all the experts are like, but they're much more comfortable living closer together now. We haven't adjusted the model. Mm-hmm. So I know there are more. Right. But the answer we have to have, because this is the model that we put forth, tells us this, even though we all know it's probably wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think that it is. Like, you can go out and do, like, if you go out and just do a count, okay? Mm-hmm. You can go out, let, let's say you go out and do a, a survey where you're flying transects out of a helicopter counting wolves. And you can be, I can damn sure tell you that there are 700. Mm-hmm probably a lot that we missed but i can damn sure tell you there's 700 mm-hmm. now you're gonna have two things the non-likers of wolves 
are going to pay a lot of attention to the problem right. more. Right. The Lakers, in the, in the way you're sketching them, mm-hmm. the Lakers are going to pay a lot of attention to that minimal known yep. number. And yep. that's very important to them because they want to present it as not as numerous because their goal is to keep them listed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other people's yeah. goal, their tendency is to delist, so they're going to like that bigger number. Mm-hmm. You find that all the time in this kind of shit. Yeah, and the, the thing that where I get sick of that, this whole discussion, is that no one really knows for certain. You can't, you can't, you're like, the, the point I think we should always make is that you look at our country, we can't even agree how to count people yeah. in this country. We, we have real, honest to God, important fights over a census for people. So if you can't count noses on humans, we know our we know our addresses. They pretty much can go into our homes and figure out what we got. Even then, they're still arguing about. But um, that's the point that some of the real famous wolf biologists make. Whether it's Val Geist, he's not specifically a wolf biologist, but he's he, an ungulate guy. Yeah, he, he knows his stuff though. There's a guy I forget his name. He's over in Italy. He's a Europe's most famous wolf researcher. The point this Italian guy makes, and it's I think. The valid point, he says, instead of worrying about individual numbers of wolves, be looking at something that matters. And what matters is how, what kind of damage they're doing. Let's, let's quantify what's, what's the damage. We can quantify that. That's much easier to, to get a handle on than how many wolves are out there. Now, if they're, not, if they're out there and they're not killing livestock, they're not killing uh, ungulates, or that, they're not doing this, who, who cares how many numbers are out there? Do you really yeah. need, to, need to have that number to really manage those wolves or do anything? And no, you don't. You know, there's price. I think Americans, and this is one thing that the rest of the wildlife biologists around the world really marvel at, is the way we hang up on numbers. Whether it's deer numbers, but it seems like it's deer and wolves, especially that people really worry about. You know, what's our what's our number on that in Wisconsin? It's, uh, we fight about numbers all the time, and we don't know what we're talking about. Like how many part. deer per square mile? Yeah, I mean, it's just. And then, then you get into arguments. Well, is a deer per square mile of habitat, and who judges the habitat quality? And you end up in these crazy, you know, where people get mad type of discussions because it, it's nothing anyone can all agree on. It's like trying to define trophy hunting. You know, they're asking people, "You like trophy hunting?" Well, you don't even define what that means. But what, Doug, what, Doug was giving me a number the other day for here. Okay, fifty deer per square mile of suitable habitat. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and that you can't even believe that. But but then 50. again. And then, and then, that, then that moves around to you know if, if you do these aerial surveys, they do it in the winter to double check. Typically, what they find is that those aerial surveys miss a lot too. Even with snow covering the ground, they still miss a lot of deer. So it's always it's always something to argue about. And the, the, the other thing that was interesting though about getting back to wolves, and you talked about well the the, the people in New Jersey love wolves and that kind of thing. The one thing that there's a really cool but much of research done about 15 years ago about wolves and people, public attitudes toward wolves. And what they found is that the, the popularity of wolves really hit its zenith back in the you know, mid-1900s when there really weren't many wolves. Yeah. And it really, people really around the world, and this is, these are, they went back and they looked at all these different sociological studies on attitudes toward wolves from all over the world, you know, Europe, Russia, um, even down in, into the uh, Middle Eastern countries that, you know, some of the mountainous areas. And they looked at, the North America continent, and they found that, yeah, that, that peaked around in the night. At the low point. Yeah. And, and as soon as they started coming back, every place they they looked was, the more you dealt with the wolves, the less popular they became. Yeah, that's my feeling about the bald eagle. Mm-hmm. If bald eagles were smart, they would stop reproducing so effectively. Yeah. 
because they had they were extraordinarily popular and they're still pretty popular but they're getting so numerous i feel that they're going to feel their popularity wane it's not that they're yeah. a problem animal to anyone but you know what i mean but i still read people like holy shit eagle you know but you'd be like well yeah there's they're, they're everywhere now yeah it's like it's it's gonna come a time when people are gonna see an eagle and they're gonna think about it like they think when they see a a, a robin. Yeah. Well, it, because they got so popular in their yeah. absence. Well, and what's fun about the bald eagle is that people, a lot of people who romanticize them, they're bummed out, they're disappointed when they see a bald eagle feeding on a carcass. Uh, the road. Road. Yeah, yeah, even though yeah. They're, they're a scavenger. Yeah, I mean it. It, it, it hurts them. It, they, it just blew their. It's like finding out that your your mother was cheating on your dad or something. You but know? you know, yeah, you know when uh, when it was put out that the idea that the bald eagle would be the national an- animal, Franklin criticized it. Ben Franklin. Mm-hmm. He's he's also mistakenly credited with putting forth the turkey. Right. Which he did not right. do. Right. But they said, okay, the eagle be the national mammal or national bird. And Ben Franklin thought, like, why would you have like a carrion eater, a lowly garbage eater? And he says, kind of people think he argues this facetiously. I've read what he wrote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had a different style. So you can't like read between the lines quite as effectively as you could read between the lines of a contemporary writer and thinker. But he had said, like, you might as well do it with the damn turkey. Because at least he's vain. <laughs> right. He's silly and vain. Yeah. And, he, and he made the point in there, I think, too, about um, he's, got, he's got guts, basically, because he, he'll attack that, that red-coated British guy if he shows up in your garden, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And so, but yeah. But yeah, he, he didn't like that. He didn't want some garbage-eating, yeah, well, carrying feeder. Well, he even questioned the eagle's courage because cause little birds attack it and can drive it away from, you know. Certain, Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so there's all these neat little things that you find about Franklin. His he was attitude. a ladies' man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely was. Definitely I don't want to get into that, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, you still haven't answered my question. Okay, I'm sorry. I you wanted to write, if you were going to write <laughs> okay. the article that was going to be most insulting to Wisconsin deer hunters, like, like Doug here, okay, mm-hmm. what would the article be? Right now, in the current climate, I guess if I wanted to, and I actually kind of have written this. <laughs> I just don't want, you know, one thing I try to do, people, um, know, I, some people will accuse me of obs- obsessing on an issue. Oh, uh, please. Yeah. And, and, what uh, is it? well, in this case, the, the thing I recommended a few years ago, people are always bashing on me about, um, well, you don't like what the DNR is doing on how they're managing CWD. So what would you do if you were the king? And I said, well, first thing I'd do is have, instead of earn a buck, I'd have double earn a buck. You don't shoot a buck until you shoot at least two antlerless deer. Okay. And that Doug thinks that you shouldn't be able to shoot any bucks. Well, I don't think that... That's not true. I don't think that'd work. Doug doesn't really think that. He was making the... I was was trying to make a point at the County Deer Advisory Committee meeting. And because... People just don't like to be forced to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest knock on. That's why we all live in America. Yeah, and, and and it's really it is part of our character. We just don't like being told what to just do. Shoot whatever we want yeah. <laughs> <laughs> until there are none left. Yeah, but so so that 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 thing does that. Every time I write about um, those kind of things where we should mandate something and make people I do something, you. then they, people they, get their they get up. mad, and and even the people who are more reasonable get mad at that. They don't. They don't. They don't want to be told what to do. But now, why? Why was it that you guys? And this isn't. This is the opposite. This is not mandating. This is unmandating. 
this is instead of instead of restricting people's choices, you were expanding people's choices, giving them more opportunity for the exercising of free will. Do you guys want to make it that you could wear pink well, that, instead that, of hunter's that, orange? That, that's law. That, that passed. Do you guys really feel that there were women who were like, "Yeah, man, I want to hunt so bad, but I am not going into the woods with that blaze orange." I think it's 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 a it's a color that um some women like and some women don't like it. They feel like you're patronizing them by saying that women want pink. But um, a friend of mine who's in the garment hunt, hunting garment industry, he said when they start making mixing pink that hot pink into their um into their hunting clothing that for Wisconsin, you know, it's basically a Wisconsin market. And I don't, I don't know if any other state has that has passed blaze pink as a <laughs> acceptable color, but in Wisconsin it sells. You know, Didn't so apparently it was a market special session of it was like. That it like went to law like faster than any other. Well, because it, it was it's an easy law to pass. It's like like I was talking to to Giannis's father today about um a current proposal. I think I was telling you about too about the guy wanting to make um the, the wild turkey or state game bird. Yeah. And Giannis's father right away says, "Well, that's the kind of law politicians like because it doesn't doesn't cause any angst. It's easily passed." goes through usually in, the, in one session and, it's, and it makes them feel good. And like, and Wisconsin is, is famous for these kind of things, designating this thing and that thing as a state, you know, we have, we have a state rock. I don't know what it is, but... It, oh, you know, we got one yeah. in Michigan's yeah. Potoski stone, man. Okay, thank you. You know no more than I do. And, and, uh, and, uh, and then, yeah, I think we have a state muffin. You know, I think it's like, like a cranberry muffin. So Doug was telling me, cranberry yeah. muffin. Yeah, so like that. <laughs> Were you telling me that? No, I, I was not. <laughs> you were telling me. I probably was. And... And I, I always remember Steve, weed muffin. I always remember get, get, getting back into the state muffin of Madison. Well, if, if I always remember um, Charles Corral, the old CBS, yeah, yeah, yeah. he he toured around Wisconsin one time, and on, a, on his little TV show that he had, it was a great program. He, he after going around Wisconsin one time, he noticed that every little town would be Wisconsin, like where I live, Iola. Bow hunting capital of the world, Fremont, yeah. Wisconsin, walleye capital of the world, white bass capital of the world. Up. Yeah, and and then you, and you find Charles Corral when all these little cities that got their capital of the world type things, and he said, "I decide that Wisconsin is the capital of the capital of the world." Yeah, and I think Wisconsin, getting back even to your Packer question, there's something Wisconsinites are just very chauvinistic about their state. Yeah, but the Wisconsinites, and this is coming from the guy that grew up in Michigan, so. I grew up in Michigan. When we went down to the beach, we were looking across at you guys. Uh, Wisconsinites, on average, are a higher caliber human than Michiganites. Hmm. How, how do you that's mean? not a real high standard, well, though. I'll is tell it? you why I think that's the case. I think that if you went around Michigan and 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 polled people, you know what? Let's limit this. To, to, okay, you go around Michigan polling people that hold either a hunting or a fishing license. So you limit your survey to those people. And you ask those people, what watershed do you live in? Hmm. I think Wisconsinites would beat them three to one. Hmm. There is a greater environmental and landscape awareness in Wisconsin than Michigan by a huge margin. And it haunts me. I can't figure out why it's true. I meet people in Wisconsin. People in Wisconsin can usually tell you like if they were to take a leak on the ground, what river that piss would wind up in and how it would make its way. Interesting. Where. 
Yeah. And like just little things like that. Or you'd be talking to like a random collection of Wisconsin dudes. More of them would know how to go find a morel than a random collection. Hmm. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I, I, Do you know I what it is, Doug? I can't speak to that. I think it's the people that you talk to in Wisconsin. You think so? Yeah. Because they all know you each hang other. Because pretty... they all know each other and they all like the outdoors a lot. Yeah. I don't know, man. I'd like to do it. I'd like to do it. Well, I'm going to do that. The, the researchers would call that, what do they call that, uh, street lamp science, where you look underneath the street lamp at night and whatever's going on there, you can see it. So you make your, that's, you, you draw these conclusions about what's going on underneath that street lamp. Well, outside the street lamp's a much bigger world. And so what you're seeing underneath that street lamp might not be anything close to what's going on around it. Yeah. And, I don't know, but but I I like to think that you're right. I like to think that Wisconsinites have a you know. I think they have an enhanced landscape awareness. And I I think that the state pride. I think of more like a yeah. I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm probably pissing off a lot of guys from my home state. I think like a more robust, um, well, state patriotism, so to speak. a, A guy I used to know in the hunting industry, he would look at that though and say. Wisconsin suffers from a whopping inferiority complex. Is that right? Yeah. So maybe you guys have a shit state, but you no. but you make up for it by thinking it's a good state and knowing what creeks or what. Maybe <laughs> you make up for it by knowing what creeks flow into what creeks that flow into what rivers. You look like totally incredulous, Doug. You're not buying it. You damn sure know what creeks you're in. Well, th- yeah, and and. Uh... Uh, you probably have a wider experience of, of folks in Wisconsin than I do because I, you know, I don't, uh, I spend a lot of time. The folks that I know, know those kinds of things, no doubt. Uh, uh, but you're saying the hunters and fishers. So I, and I have no idea in Michigan what people think. And, I've been and all think. around both places. Yeah. Man. I don't yeah. want to dwell on it. I want to get back to stuff mm-hmm. to Pat, yeah. stuff that I read to Pat's. Where was I reading the article that you wrote? What, that's one thing I like about knowing you is I stumble into your articles because hmm. you write for all kinds of places. Not, I don't yeah. stumble into your columns. I stumble hmm. into your articles you write in magazines. Okay. And, and I believe, at least I've been attributing it to you, did you write a thing where, where you were covering some research about uh, what bucks do during rut? Oh, yeah. yeah do they, where do they actually like do they travel? Because I keep saying he wrote this. Right. Oh, you yeah. Okay. I, I've written that. Yeah. Hold on. The editor of Deer and Deer Hunting, Bucks During a Rut? Probably not. Pat. No, no, no. Recently. Oh, recently. Yeah. And it was about uh, GPS data. Okay. Yep. On do bucks. It was like, it was like, do bucks really travel all over right. holy hell during right. the rut? Yeah. I've written a couple on that. Yeah. Yeah. A number of them. So now that I've told people what I think you said, what did you say in that? Or um, what, were the, what, what were you reporting on? Yeah. The, the, the one thing that I liked about some of this recent research they've been doing with, with bucks during the rut and where they go is now they're using GPS and can actually really get a pretty good handle on where they are at numerous times a day. And you know, in the old days, 30 years ago, they'd do it with radio telemetry 20, 25 years ago. And they'd only get a reading every every couple of days or something whenever they happen to go out and put their antennas yeah, and up and, find and triangulate them. And yeah. it, was, it was very difficult. But was, what was interesting was that um, some of this research from the 90s that was done with the old-fashioned way, they found even back then that these bucks are really individuals. That when you say 
bucks always do this during the rut. You know, they, they, go, they really go ranging over the place. Well, some do, but most of them don't. You know, but, but there's still always these exceptions that will, some buck will um, go off and who knows where. But Yeah, like did an elk in, like did an elk or, or a lion born in South Dakota gets hit by a car in Connecticut? Yeah. Well, that, sure. that, 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 yeah. Do they all go to Connecticut? No. No? Because there <laughs> right. won't be in any lions in South Dakota. <laughs> right. right. And, and, and then what, what's um, fascinating about a lot of this research, what they, what they start kind of ref, are figuring what's going on is that um, if a buck early in life scores close to home, well, the system works. So he stays close to home for the most part as long as he's alive. You know, you'll always stumble on if there's enough does in the area and he hangs around and, he, and he's a plugger and he keeps moving around until he gets one. Get some play. It, it, the system works. So he, he keeps doing it. Well, if a buck, another buck gets, let's say, for whatever reason, gets chased out of that little area and can't, can't you know, he's just got the hormones going and he can't stop himself and starts wandering and encounters a, a doe. Well, that system works for him. So next year he's doing that again. So that it's really individual. It's probably some little things that I think it's probably very similar to just how our gun season works around here. Some years, if you're sitting on that same deer stand every single year and some guy comes in from a different way one day and a buck runs by you, you think, well, the system's working pretty good. You know? But you didn't know that. It's just a fluke that this guy chased a buck past you. And, but, you know, but the other thing, too, that's cool about some of this research is that I, I look at it and I think, well, you know, Based on all this GPS data, what Val Geis was saying about mule deer 30, 40 years ago holds up, you know, because he- Which po- is? Well, like Geist and John Ozoga, who did whitetail research up, uh, up in the UP of Michigan, they found that some of these really beautiful bucks, the biggest bucks were, I think, I think Geist called them shirkers. They would come out and they didn't want to get their ass kicked. So if there was a buck- working the doe rather than engage and try to drive that buck off he'd shrink back now maybe what happened early in his life was that he got in the middle of, he got between a buck and a doe and the bull, buck gored him beat the crap out of him and he thought i don't want to go through that again and so he his system was to say in a safer area look for the one to drop into his lap and and and, and nail her and live longer and live longer and then but then when that big buck gets shot or just disappears from the landscape all of a sudden he goes oh Man, game on again. He's back out there. He's now he's doing a little bit different behavior. And what was really cool about some of the stuff that Ozoga did up in Michigan. What did guys call that? The shirkers. Shirkers? Yeah. He called them. Sounds big, like Yiddish. No, shirk. You know, to shirk. What does he, that shirk, mean? Shirk, shirk your duties. S H I R K. Shirk. No, I don't use that term. Okay. You use that term, Giannis? I don't. No? Don't. Well, it's, but you know the word. Occasionally. Though. You do? Yeah. Yeah. But I think guys call them shirkers. And um, Ozoga had a, a very similar conclusion that there's, there's bucks that don't really engage much. And he was, he checked some of these bucks in, in his study pen up in the UP, it's like a mile square pen. And one of the things he found in there was that these, this buck that was not engaging and not taking part, he, he um, they, I think they, they must have, they must have had a way to trap them and check their blood because he did a blood check on this buck. Well, it turns out this buck had a high level of progesterone, a female, hor- the female hormone. Is that right? Yeah. And then, but when that buck got his chance from the other, the bigger buck that was dominating him, you know, that scaring him, when that buck disappeared from, you know, I, I think he died and they just moved him out of the pen or something. I think he probably died. Well, as soon as that big buck, that that stress inducer was, was removed, his 
progesterone levels dropped. No you, shit, no really? No shit. And you think, this is cool stuff they're doing back in days before GPS. Yeah. You know, you know and, what Giannis believes? Giannis believes that, I think it's Giannis that believes this, that there are bucks who will go up and hide. This is the same stuff that he's talking about. Val Geist's work. Yeah, but I, I just don't. I've read a fair bit of Val Geist. Let, let's leave it to leave okay. it to Pat. Giannis believes, based on a thing that he believes originated with Valerius Geist, that there are bucks who will play the very long game and they'll go up and hide up in some hidey hellhole their whole life until they're just giants. Then one day they'll think to themselves, you know, I'm about as big as I'm going to get. I'm ready. And then they'll come down, then they'll walk down and get them all. I have a very difficult time with that. I, I guess I'd side with you. Am I saying it right, Yannis? Well, no. I mean, I think you're you're making the exaggerated Steve version of the, of the sh- of the shirker <clears throat> of the shirker that he just explained. Oh, yeah. We're just like in, in times of like when like times are hard, and it's like there might be like a like you're not feeling that well. There's like a rough winter, or you didn't have a great summer. You didn't put on a lot of fat. Like they decide to instead of go in and engage and just go crazy. They're shirk. like, I'll shirk this year, maybe a couple years. The system's working mm-hmm. for me, and then re-enter. Well, yeah. Did, did no, he not? Well, that's did, the thing, did, thing is, I, I would never say that wouldn't happen because I just gave some examples where it, where it kind of happens. And the thing that um, Geist will talk about, and you know, deer farmers see the same thing, that the bucks that aren't being stressed, they grow big antlers because you know, they can put so much of their energy into those into their, their growth. You know, these animals that are stressed – they're nervous. They're always looking over their shoulder. That impacts antler development. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Stress. Definitely. Stress Stress is a big influence on, on antler development. So dudes that are um, shed hunting and need eat snow are making next year's sheds not as big. Well, you, know, you could probably make that argument, but, you know, the, if you see... That makes people mad. Because <laughs> it comes yeah. down to you telling someone he can't do okay, something you're, he wants to do. You're, you're trying to get me to write a column about that now, huh? <laughs> Well, just, there's a thing because we had like a pretty bad winter in some yeah. areas, and people started yeah. bringing up and shed hunting's more and more. It used to be you go in the woods. I hate sentences beginning. It used to be when I was a boy. <laughs> when I was a boy, like you went out in the woods, you found a deer antler. You're like, oh, there's deer antler, right? It wasn't like a thing that like was like it just wasn't as much of a thing mm-hmm. to find sheds, right? Like you didn't have many people who really like self-identified as shed hunters. Who do special trips to go hunting sheds? This, oh yeah, right, right. So now, as it's becoming more and more popular, and people are more and more gung ho to get after them, the second they drop, to the point where they watch yarded up deer in deep snow, come you know March, whatever, wherever deer in your area drop, that they're watching them yarded up, and the minute they start dropping, or that they're chasing them to get them to drop, right. Like a deer will drop one and not the other, and then they chase after it to try to get it to jostle free the other antler so they can get a matching pair. So some people have pointed out this might be something we need to get out ahead of, the same way we got out ahead of that you can't hunt year-round as much as you want. Mm-hmm. And there's seasons for that. They put forth this idea that we would regulate this more, and that pisses people well, you, off. Well, you can't find a more stressful time probably for, for so deer and elk in that, that time of year. 
No, that's I mean, what so really you know, Yanni always says. Winter weakens, spring kills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in that warden that we chatted with in uh, November in Colorado, he was saying the number one, uh, you know, impact on the deer populations now he believes is, well, maybe it was like even now with habitat, but the summer recreation that is just, you know, and it's just like, there's more people that haven't been in the woods, you know, in past years. And now there's just hikers and bikers and, you know, they've been looking, they've been doing a lot of work looking at methods of conveyance and what it tends to do with uh, dispersal away from trails. Hmm. And there's like some counterintuitive shit. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. About what freaks them out and what doesn't freak them out. Yeah, well, if you go into a lot of these game farms, like a, a deer farm especially, because deer are really a skittish animal that doesn't do well in confinement, they, that's why they have all those, you'll see um, like black drape type material around the fences. Because if deer see something outside the fence that makes them nervous, they, you know, they start going nuts. They start running around in circles. Gotcha. It's, it's very stressful. Just keep relaxed. Yeah, and they try to keep them relaxed as much as they can and keep them, you know, isolated from all that kind of, all those stressors. And, but, you know, like, it's, I always find it interesting that the elk farmers will see some of the elk out in the wild in northern Wisconsin and up in the Clam Lake area, which isn't very good elk habitat. And they're, a lot of them are spindle rack type, type bulls that aren't anything real impressive. They aren't like something you see out in um, Arizona or something. And then they'll show some of the elk they have. And think, well, yeah, but you're controlling the environment in that, in that pen. And the, and you, you, the elk got all their, they have their food right there for them. They have every, all the environments controlled. They're not out there running around chasing running away from wolves or worrying about wolves. Yeah. And and then all anything that's staying constantly alert, that take that takes its toll, you know, on their on their energy and their their overall well being. So I think most people can relate to that. Just something you wanted to add, Doug? Well, when we you're talking about different bucks and you know and, and how they acted on that, it just sounded to me like you're talking about guys. You know, that well yeah, I know guys that are more active or more interested in I've known guys my whole life who are more active, more interested in women, not interested in women. Yeah, you got your shirkers too. Yeah, you got your shirkers. Yeah. My experience. One guy's like, he's going to go out to the bar. He's going to, you know, pound it at the bar. He's going to put in a long night Thursday, long night Friday, long night Saturday, spend all of his money drinking at the bar, right? Yeah, well, that's what I'm Just getting at. dying to meet someone. And then you got some shirker. He's at home on he's the just couch. Gonna, yeah, he's got roommates. He's just going to hang tight, <laughs> yeah, see well, what comes snipping around two in the morning. Yeah. My yeah. my experience with with deer in a very limited area, you know, in this this uh, farm is the older the deer gets, the less it moves. That's the way it seems to me. I like that. We saw something this year that we've already talked about a bunch of times, but we saw a group of mule deer, a, bo- a shitload of does, and a very nice buck in an aspen patch and yanni is looking through his knockers and he says oh some coyotes are coming down through the aspen patch okay coyotes come down and all these freaking does just come out of there like just spraying out of this aspen patch okay that buck stands there and these are his like he's got them collected up he's working these does he stands up assesses the situation what's going on looks watches the coyotes all of his does are gone and you see him like running that shit in his head i swear it looked like and he's like you know what i'm just gonna lay back down 
I'm not going to go running out out of this asthma patch getting shot at by some asshole. He's like, I'm just going to lay down and this this will all My sort itself. better here. It'll sort itself out later. Yeah. He lays back down and then over the course of the day, all those doles come trickling back into that asthma patch. Hmm. And think about the calories that he saved by not going on that run. Yeah, he's like, you all can run around getting all worked up. I think the thing to do is to hold tight. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons that I try to have a place on the farm that we don't go into and let them have a place that that's the deer's place, you know, that they can go in there and, 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 you know, that's their sanctuary. sanctuary. Yeah. It, might, it might be too. Um, do sanctuaries, are sanctuaries, do they work based on your well, experience? Well, based on what, what you hear from, um, some of the guys that are really serious about it, they they, um, they believe in it because. Sorry, I'm not disrespecting you, man. <laughs> I thought I was trying to do you a favor. Oh, no, maybe, no, 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 no. I, I think it's I think it's pretty much um, a lot of folks that follow the quality quality deer management type ideas and setting up their land and, and a lot of them really believe in the sanctuaries. You know, there's certain areas they'll put off guard and it's put reached, off limits. It's reached scholarly consensus. Well, I'm not sure if it's. I don't know if it's done that. <laughs> I really don't. I I haven't. I can't say I've seen anything on that. There might be, but I haven't seen it. You know, or else I've. No, I don't mean. I don't mean literally scholarly, okay. but it's reached like um it's def- professional consensus. Right. I mean, I know a number of guys who are deadly serious about keeping a sanctuary intact. The only time they go in there is to retrieve a dead deer, basically. And they really don't violate their own sanctuary. Right. Right. That I have a hard time believing. Mm-hmm. Well, that you like, right? You got this farm, and all you're really doing is, you know, you got all your responsibilities, but you want to kill a big deer. You like to grow a big deer and you want to kill a big deer and, and season's going on and you know, there's big giants around and you look in there and you see them all the time in there and season's winding down. You got a day left. All the cousins and shit have gone home and there he is in the sanctuary. You're looking in there at him. Well, I don't you're telling me that there are guys out there who would be like, nope, can't do it. Won't do I, it. I I know. Won't I, do it. It's my I know, sanctuary. I know Bullshit. some guys like that. I know some guys. Like that. Bullshit. Well, but and and their defense, Steve. What they're saying probably is that my odds of killing that buck are better by waiting out here in this trail that's that leading down to a an alfalfa field or whatever it might be. But hanging no, he's out here. looking at him in the sanctuary. Well, I don't. They can see him. They're probably back in there in that thick cover. No, this, they, this sanctuary I'm thinking about. Okay. There's a little pocket you can look into. Oh, really? Okay. The yeah. one I'm okay. the one I'm imagining. Yeah. And he's in that little pocket. No one. Okay. No okay. one. Well, if you can see him, no, I, I well, agree with you. That's not a sanctuary. You can see him. That's a sanctuary. Good. Good point, Doug. But <laughs> the, the, you're the, walking too close to this thing. <laughs> if you can see him. Yeah, he's like, I don't even want to know what's going on. So this, is, this is your fantasy um, <laughs> sanctuary that you I'm, can pa- I'm putting out a hypothetical that right, well, I understand, okay. but I would, I would like to think, I would, I bet you that you will find that most, if not all, sanctuaries get violated by the sanctuary owner. Maybe not his buddies, <laughs> but I think sanctuaries oh. are made to be unsanctuaried by their owner. It's a way for him to say, let's take it easy, see how things play out. There's nothing you cousins and whatnot could do to get in there. I'm going to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, but the thing, I, thing I'm struggling with, in all sincerity, is you know how hard it is as an individual hunter to go in any patch of cover and get a crack at, at, a, at any deer that's in there. And so why would a guy... Intentionally violate his own sanctuary with, with very low odds of ever seeing that buck. Because he goes in there. creeping in there and puts a stand in there. Yeah, 
I don't want to dwell on it. Yeah. Okay. Now, let me well, ask you about this. Oh, go ahead. Well, I want to circle back to Yanni's story real quickly. Another possible explanation for why he didn't run out of there is that there are cases where they've, they've, they've documented this and actually photographed it where a buck will stand down a coyote or stand, stand off a, a wolf just by bracing up, taking it on, and looking at, basically staring the animal down saying, you want some of this? Yeah. Come try. Well, you know what's funny about that? Now that you want to dig deeper on mm-hmm. this, I'll point out that those, those coyotes had absolutely no interest in those deer. Mm-hmm. It's not what they were doing. But a couple days later, another big buck. I later wound up shooting this buck. He's with, I don't know, seven or eight does. A couple of coyotes come through, and he's the one that runs away. Huh. So they all spill off the back of the hill. And then over the next 15, 20 minutes, they all trickle back into where they were. He never comes back. He spilled off the back of the hill, crossed the gully, and we later found him, bedded up. Huh. So it might have been like, he's like, yeah, I was kind of thinking about going to have yeah. a nap anyways. <laughs> yeah. It's getting late <laughs> in the knows? day. Yeah. It's like, I don't like to be out this time of day because I've learned in my general buckness yeah. that it's like, you get your morning business taken care of and you go hide. So yeah. maybe just like, I was going to leave now anyway, so now I'm just going to leave. Yeah, try, try and, trying to figure out why an animal does something. God, you know, good luck. Yeah. You know, individual animals. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes yeah. you have yeah. no idea. Yeah. And, 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 I just I just glassed up a skunk working Doug's hill in the middle of the day. Right. What was he doing? Right. Doug I, thinks he smells afterbirth from the cat. <laughs> <laughs> well. Here's what I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Similar thing, and, and I've and I've think I've I've talked about my I've talked about what I think you wrote about. What is the latest? What's the what's the the uh, thinking on what that that lunar phases, okay, affect deer like people are like ah oh, I'm not even gonna bother hunting full moon. That, I'm sure that discussion has been going on as long as people have been hunting. One of my one of my guys that I look up to the most as a hunter, Remy Warren. Mm-hmm. Remy, he is a firm believer to the point where he'll. Book even for bears, spring spot stock spring bears. He'll book his clients around lunar cycles. Hmm. The, Bless his heart. Yeah, yeah. And to me, the, the one one thing I really do believe in is that if you have that kind of confidence in in something, chances are it works. I have so, no, yeah, but I, I, I yeah, but don't don't do the like what works for you. I understand all that. Okay, okay, I won't. But, um, like, cause then you're just saying like, you're open up, like, like if I, if I say, oh, I like, uh, you know, uh, blue, like I like the, this Rapala and I'll be like, all right, dude, if you got confidence in it and it works for you, but that's a yeah. different conversation yeah. than like what works. Okay. You're humoring someone when you say that. Uh, maybe, but, um, the research I've seen out though, is that when they've tried to t- tie in lunar activity to all these different movements, whether it's um, for breeding purposes, where like um, Charlie Alshimer always had a, an interesting theory on on um, what triggers the rut. It's a, it's, a, it's, like a, it's a harvest moon that kind of sets things in motion. Well, when the researchers go in and, and actually look at this stuff and back backdate, you know, when fawns drop, because they can backdate that stuff pretty accurately. And when, Yeah, they, they know, have a known gestation. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. So they, they go back and they look at that stuff and they do it year after year and they... They basically always beat up Charlie's um, theories on that, and they beat up any other theory you see on on lunar cycles. 
And because what triggers the rut is ten things. Uh, yeah. It's a, you can't untangle them all. Yeah. Yeah. Photo, I, like photo period, all kinds of right? and, and see, I like I, I, and I would I would never try to take on a guy you know, like. In my generation, the guy that we all looked up to was John Wooters, the old um, deer. He was a, the deer expert for um, Peterson's Hunting Magazine back in the seventies, eighties, nineties. And John really believed in the moon. He he um, he. Is that right? Yeah, he really followed the, the, the lunar phases, and he always talked about. I think his his belief was that the the full moon was a terrible time to be to be out there hunting in daylight. And the thinking is, this is it's always articulated to me by people who really abide by lunar cycles, is. The thinking is that it's extra light out mm-hmm. and deer are getting all their business taken care of at night because deer are like a crepuscular animal. Their peak activity is low light. So dawn, dusk, but here they're having like a crepuscular like atmosphere mm-hmm. all through the night, dark, but not dark that they get all their business taken care of. And then they're all tired out and they just go to bed. Mm-hmm. When it gets daylight out, that's yeah. like that's your understanding too. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, just to throw, just to throw a, a, you know, just to mix it up a little bit, down in South America where they hunt nocturnal, where they hunt like nocturnal animals, they don't like to hunt at night during a full moon because some nocturnal animals have such fidelity to the darkness that they won't come out on a moonlit night. Hmm. That because their their defense mechanism oh, yeah. is like dark. I think there's so that. they won't hunt till they'll wait till the moon sets and then go hunt certain nocturnal animals. Like that thing, if it's at all light, that some bitch does not come out. I'm pretty sure they found the same thing with predator studies in North America. There's certain um, certain small mammals that won't come out on a bright moon because they know the owls can see them easier. You don't bitch slap them. And, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they'll be killed. And and I guess I'm always somewhat skeptical of the all night activity thing because I think well. Deer have their patterns. They're going to be up on their feet all night long. Anyone that's seen deer at night, a lot of times they're. But I have fine beds out in my back little woods where I live. That I know there's no deer in there in the daylight because that's a little open woods. There's never deer in there in the daylight. They might move through at dawn or dusk, but they don't. They don't spend daylight in there. It's just too too small little spot. But before you go back there in the winter, there's always fresh deer beds from overnight. You know, so they're they're not on their feet all night. Yeah, I, I never I never buy that. That there's you know there's on their feet. He's like, oh, moving. sweet. I can get everything I was going to get taken care of, taken care of. Get every, have sex with all the deer I was going to have sex with, eat all the food I was going to eat. I'll get all that taken care of. And I don't need to be running around like some yeah. moron come, but, come daybreak. On the other hand, though, deer, too, also have incredible night vision. Their eyes really are, are built for that nighttime activity. So I doubt they're walking around stumbling through the dark on, on moonless nights. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I just... But... I, I really don't argue that a whole lot. If a guy has the data and it works for him, the thing I'd say, though, to a lot of these guys that say, well, in my observations on my trail cameras, I never see any kind of good activity during um, certain hours on, on certain days of the moon. I think, has that really stood up the scientific rigors, though? That, you know, really, where you have a guy that's a scientifically modeling guy that can put all his data together and really cross-check that stuff. Yeah. As a stuff that kind of scientific rigor, I doubt it. Because most of us aren't trained. So you're doubting it. So if God came down and put a gun to your head and said, do lunar phases matter or not? And you had to say it has to be yes or no. I, I'd say no. I just really? I, I just go hunting. Pat Durkin. I, I just go hunting. Pat Durkin putting a 
I because well, the thing is, <laughs> I have to I have to tell you, this is one of Pat's favorite subjects. What phase of the rut we're in? <laughs> it's an inside joke with him and I for years because we have some uh, a, a mutual well, a friend of his acquaintance of mine who just I can't get on the same page with these deer and what what phase of the rut? So in the yeah. fall, I'll contact Pat every once in a while and just ask him what phase of the rut do you think we're in? So moving to moving to anecdotal. What's your take on uh, what's your take on lunar phases, Doug? Just like your personal observations. Don't even ignore what what like anything you read, just because you like to pay attention to deer uh, and who's shooting deer when and what and how and. You know, I I really don't even have an opinion about it uh, because I feel the same way. I see deer. It looks like we do a little shining in the fall. We'll see. I'll see deer lying in fields. You know at when when you can shine you know before 10 o'clock at night um i always think deer activity is based way more on what the weather is i, I was just gonna say the same thing i mean i, I know you asked me a yes or no a gun to your head question but god with a gun to your head. god with a gun to my well god wouldn't need a gun <laughs> but, <laughs> gotta just be he has it so that you know he's serious my my, my big thing when it comes to the rut, is the, the daytime temperature. If the daytime temperature is above four, above forty five degrees, uh, that's when I get bummed out. Like, oh god, the deer probably won't be moving as much when it's this this form to get that I heavy coat you. on. I, I just think the weather is more of a, a bigger. Pe- so you're an, you're an air temp man, much more, much more than lunar. Yeah. Okay. Now let me ask you one last one. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash me eater o'reilly auto parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road o'reilly auto parts offer friendly helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs if you're confused about what part you need like what wipers are going to be the best what replacement headlights are going to be the best go into o'reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. 
picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Does camo matter? And I'm not talking, yeah, just like, I just want you to give me sort of a, from, cause, cause you stay up on the, on the research. Mm-hmm. Okay. So not, not personal experience, but just like f- from your assessment of the research, uh, what are deer seeing? Does camo matter? Like what's kind of like the current fashionable feeling? The, the, the thing I wrote just recently about camo basically and colors, you know, cause you get in the whole color vision, what can deer see in colors and. The biggest thing, by far, is movement. Doesn't matter what you're. If you move, make any kind of sudden jerky movement, deer are just so tuned in to to movement, and they have what I think is like a 310, 300 degree area they can see. They don't see real real great above them, which we, most of us know. The but big, that's why deer that get bow hunted a lot walk around looking in well, the they trees. Do. Oh, yeah. They do. Yeah, but 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 um, because I remember growing up and being like, "How's that son of a bitch going around looking up in the trees?" Well, he's been he's been, he's been shot at. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, um, that what the what we do know about camel is that if you're gonna choose a camel, that what I've been reading on this is that deer deer can see shades of gray, and so the lighter shades of gray and the lighter tans, I think, they seem to be able to discern those a lot better than they can the darker hues. So the, the camel that has a lot of lot of light tans, a lot of light grays, I'd avoid those. Based so the, on what the, I've like read. the the kuyu camel that's meant to look like you're laying on a, a gravel bar, that's a lot of light okay. grays. Yeah, I guess like where I hunt, I'd probably go with the darker stuff. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. But but I'm but I'm, but I'm, but I'm there, there's environments where I I I would still say if I was going to give anybody advice. Try to match where you are at, you know, common sense, you know. Really? Yeah. You know, and, and you think that you think that the research bears that out? Well, what the research is like showing. They're not on some whole other trip, yeah. right? Well, the deer I'm, aren't seeing some whole other trip. Because, like, you know, there's this stuff that came out about birds. Like, birds have a lot of iridescence in their feathers. Mm-hmm. And, like, people start to think that when a bird sees a bird's iridescence, it's on this whole other level that you can't even begin to think about. Right. Like, right. what a turkey looks like to a turkey or what, what a. 
I think this stuff had to do with green parrots or something, some of the research. It's like what he sees when he sees that thing, he's not he doesn't see anything like what you see. Oh yeah. It's but, a completely different experience for him to see that bird. Well, well see, I remember when they first came out the some of the really good color vision research back about nineteen ninety one, I think it was. The first thing this Dr. Carl Miller from the University of Georgia put on the screen was a picture of a buck, you know, dressed up as a hunter. He had he had a little orange hat on, had sunglasses on. And the point he made to start off his talk about what deer see, says, until we can somehow tap into that animal's brain and actually see what information is passing through that eye into the brain and how he's perceiving that, we'll never know for certain exactly what they're seeing. Because, you know, their capabilities are so much different from ours. You know, like you read about a, a, a deer's nose, for example, being like the human nose, I guess they think we have about five million scent receptors in our nose. Yeah. That deer has like 300 million, 280, 300 million scent receptors. So scent to us compared to a deer's is, is irrelevant. You know, imagine, like, you know, we can't begin to comprehend what that deer is picking off out of the air. Yeah. So, and I think there's probably things with their vision too that from what we, from what we know, to get back to your question about um, what, what does the research show about the camel, well, the research can't, I don't think anyone's really gone into research as far as trying to match up how, how different camels work in different environments, because how would you do that? Yeah. You know, the best they can do is, they've done this, this research, at, again, at the University of Georgia, where they had this, this test set up to um, show that their colors on, on, on lighted colors over feed bins. If they choose the wrong color, the feed bin won't open, oh, feed, feed bill feed bin shuts. Well, over time, they get these deer trained when they can start identifying colors, which which colors they can identify to know that, well, that's where the food will be. And what they found there was that these lighter lighter shades of uh, gray and, and, and white, those kind of, you know, lighter colors, they get seem to be able to dis- discern those pretty well. Yeah. And, and but plus, you're saying like if there's like blue and purple next to each other, then they can't tell. Probably not, but, but, they, but a deer too, their, their, their blue ability to see blue, again, blows ours out of the water. We can't begin to comprehend how well they see blue. That's what I've heard. Like, well, I, I, I've read too where guys are saying like, like, it seems that one thing is certain. Don't wear blue. Yeah, yeah. And, and but you know, again, like back to what you're saying earlier, though, and this is just this is just anecdotal, but it's based off a ton of, like a lot of personal experience. Okay, like I said, like jackass on TV guy shit, but a lot mm-hmm. of personal experience that I have had things come up, like when you're not moving, come up, and they just can't they just can't comprehend you, or they're looking. This is the part that trips me out. They're looking, but they're not putting it together that it's a threat, but they're curious about what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. So they're like, not that I see a deer. I just see something I don't understand. Or not that I see a person or a threat. I just see something I don't understand. And they're looking at you, but not no fear. Yeah. They're just like, they see something they haven't seen. Yeah. Well, And then I think they're like seeing, it's got to be that they're seeing like a collection of colors or a collection of shapes that's unfamiliar because even coming toward it, Ears perked forward, coming at you, mm-hmm. just being like, "The hell is that?" Yeah. More curious well, than yeah, the same way deer go up to trail cams. It's like, yeah. what the hell is that thing yeah. in the tree? I haven't well, seen one of those before, and they go up to it to be like, "What is it?" You know. And I, I've seen. Um, I used to hunt um, northwestern Ontario for deer quite often back in the in the nineties and and late nineties, early two thousands, and it's the only place I've ever seen this. I the biggest, the buck I'm most proud of as a hunter that I killed was up in Ontario in 1995 and that buck 
was looking at me for the longest time until I think he was looking at me for a long time before I actually saw him because I was on this little precipice looking in this valley below me. There's a recent clear cut, me, a 10-year-old clear cut. And I looked up into the jack pines across from me about 125 yards away and I saw the haunch of a deer. And I thought, that's got to be a deer. And I looked, but it's only the third deer I saw like in seven days. I got my scope up because I knew it was a deer. I wasn't any doubt about that. And I thought, if that's a buck, I'm going to be ready to shoot. I got, got sorry. Got, that was, I got, that was, that was a, a pass, trigger yeah, hand. Yeah, a trigger hand. But I make, make a long story short, sort of like a shot. I got I got that scope up. That deer's looking right at me. And it, it looked like the way he was looking at me is like he's probably watching me for a while. And curious. Curious. Like, what the hell is that over there? Because I don't think they see many humans in that particular area. And I, I killed him. And about two years later, a similar thing happened. My buddy and I, this guy named Bruce Ranta, lives in, in Kenora, Ontario. We were moving along this, this old granite face, looked across another one of these big openings and up on top, right, right on a no, just like he rose out of the ground, which he literally did. This buck stands up and just looks at us. Didn't run off like a typical deer around here would mm-hmm. do. Just stood there and looked at us. And I had time where I, well, I didn't, wasn't like I took my time, but I, I hit the ground and got my rifle up and shot him off the, uh, a prone position and nailed him. And he went down. And so I thought that's twice I've had bucks yeah. in, in these areas that aren't hunted very often. Just looked me over out of curiosity. But you know what they don't do? They're never curious about what they smell. No, exactly. Yeah. They never yeah. question their nose, man. Yeah. That's, I think that you can take that one to the bank. Yep. Yeah. I don't, need no, I don't need no outdoor columnist no, to tell no, me that. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you fill out the story? Because I want to know why you're most proud of that. Book. Oh, because it was. Not uh, just because that. Shitty conditions. No, yeah. It, it was a, a real tough hunt. It was, it was a, I had eight days to hunt it. And I was, I was bound determined not to leave till I put in my full time. And, Going into that seventh day, I'd only seen one deer at a distance where it was snorting, and I had one little buck I passed up the first day, which I was not going to go all the way to Ontario and shoot a four-corn, you know, so I let it go. So, but I got down to where I knew I was down in my final afternoon. I had one more morning to go, and I, another reason I was proud of it is because I remember— Was I, it a big old fatty? It was a, it was a big buck. He, he weighed 240 dressed out. Oh. And he had a beautiful— cathedral type rack it's a real tight 13 inch and a half inch spread beautiful deer and what was what i was really one of the things i was proud of too not only the fact that i persevered through that kind of tough hunt and i got up in the spot and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon it was actually 150 150 in the afternoon because i looked my watch after i killed him and i was looking around and i thought this is a cool spot i might come back here tomorrow morning and I had one of these old GPS units from the original GPS units that Lawrence made about that this tall. Yeah, I remember. And they had these, you had to put them in a big cargo pocket. I remember locking that spot in. And then as I, I snapped the little button, I remember that little snap. And I thought, God, that was loud. And I thought, and it was a quiet day like today. I thought, before I budge, I better look around real carefully before I budge. And I thought, I looked around and I see that haunch and I kill him. I thought, you know, so often you, when you do that kind of thing, you get you let Couldn't your guard have got it down. down. Couldn't have got it done without my lower hands. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I think, and then, and now, now that's one of the beauties, one of the beautiful things about hunting, is those kind of little odd twists like that. Yeah. For all I know, just because I stopped long enough, what I'm thinking happened when I'm back, I backtracked that buck in the snow, is it looks like it came down off this hill. I bet you about the time I was playing around with that GPS unit, 
came out in a little spot. And I think what stopped him was that, that snap. Mm, yeah, I yeah. snapped that. And then he looked across and saw me. And I'm, meanwhile, I'm looking down here, scanning the hillside. And there he is. And I shoot him. Huh. And so I, but I always think all oh, those little things that we always write off as, you know, hunter skills. I think well, a lot of times just you were, you, you got him because you stayed alert, but you also got him because of a, a fluke, you know, like that, yeah. that snapping the button. And I, I was going that, to man. say that deer hadn't seen a, we were spec, you were speculating that he hadn't seen a right. human before and you're on this precipice that might have been a spot that he was familiar with and he goes, that doesn't belong there. Mm-hmm. And so since he didn't feel you were a threat, he's just standing there yeah. looking at you going. And I wasn't moving. Yeah. And it's like Steve said. So the sound is interesting hey, too. Yeah, no, I've definitely been like fortunate to hang out in areas where you can safely assume they have never encountered a human and it's just it's a different experience. Mm-hmm. It's they, you know, the the way that high pressure animals react to humans is a, is a learned behavior. Yeah, you know, the the other thing that goes into this too, as far as um, why it might have been looking at me that long without um, fleeing. You had was, pink camo on. Yeah, you were you were <laughs> head to toe hot pink. <laughs> the, um, well, because at that distance, that I was probably 125 yards away, and from from, from the best. Guess the researchers can make on deer vision. They figure the deer's vision is probably about, about the equivalent of our twenty one hundred vision. That what we that I don't what, know what that means. If you had like twenty twenty visions, you know, perfect, yeah. you know, good vision. I mean, or really good human vision. Well, they figure the deer is about twenty one hundred. That what we see clear at hundred, they see. How does that work? <laughs> um, basically, I can't. I'm not going to explain this stuff. But is it worse or better now? It's worse. 20, 2100 is far worse than ours. Okay. And, and so they probably see kind of a blurry image at that range uh, at 100 yards. They, they probably can make it out, but it's not real sharp like our. A, a guy that was a really sharp vision, like me wearing glasses at 100 yards, I can see, I can make things out pretty, pretty fine detail. And the, the best research they've done now recently, then, you know, like Carl Miller will say, if you want to get down to camo patterns, you could probably do really well with just a blurry pattern. You know, not, not, you don't need all these fine details because deer can't see those fine details anyway. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Yanni, you got anything you want to add? Man, I had something I wanted to add. And I can't there was, uh, it we were going to talk possibly about the, uh, le- the movement to legalize sale deer meat. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, they, uh, you want to hit on that real sure. quick? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you, I feel like you wrote a thing. Yeah, I did. You wrote a thing, kind of like, oh yeah, you know, could be cool, maybe not. What I did was I. I remember I, being a little bit pissed at you when I read that. I, I remember you telling me that, yeah. Because <laughs> Steve, Steve, Steve sent me. Yeah, I, I remember I was somewhere. I was like out of town somewhere, and I read that. And I was like, God damn, Pat Durkin. And I, I remember you writing to me and said, just something like, just so you know, I. Totally disagree with that, <laughs> and I, and, and which I, which I don't want to go on that path. But I, I really, I really like that. I, I don't mind people disagreeing with me. I just figure, you know, this is democracy. No, you probably it's, wrote it in the big heyday when everyone thought that across the country that we were just going to have more and more and more and more deer. Well, that's which is like like turkeys. Oh, we got a lot of turkeys. Let's start shooting hens and killing them year round. And my, my interest in it was um, what what triggered my interest in it. In all seriousness, was um, I was I was visiting my daughter who was stationed then at the Navy Hospital in Naples, Italy. Okay. And we went up. Went up we spent a, um, some time up in Florence. So this is 2013. 
we went into this really neat restaurant in Florence. And there in the menu, it says uh, for, um, is for venison and for pork that th- these meats during the hunting season are fresh, fresh from that day. And the rest of the season, they're frozen. Okay. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. You can actually get, you know, you know, hunter killed that, um, meat. Yeah, it's right. called the European model of, it's called yeah. the European model. And, and so Where, I, do I need to, yeah, I don't need to tell you about all about American history. Right. right. <laughs> right. The Brits right. and Robin Hood. Right. Yeah. But, um, well, that, it got me thinking though that I, I just come from Sweden. Okay. I'd been up in Stockholm and up, up in Stockholm and in Sweden, um, people up there, it's, the the thing that they do is they they don't if I want to sell Yanni some meat from last year's deer I could do that in 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 um in Stockholm in Sweden okay and and but a lot of them don't I mean they they can legally do it but a lot of them still don't do it they they but a lot of them they'll take meat and just give it to them as as a gift you know, like like we kind of like what we do yeah but, but 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 I I guess my point in that, in that in that article the thing I got talking about by interviewing some of the Swedish hunters and some of the different people who have worked in, in both systems, is that, you know, we're, we, could, we could probably do this, but it would take a, a whole lot of rethinking of the American model and how we do things in America. But there are, there are certain circumstances, which I think was what, maybe what, what pissed you off, was that there are um, areas in this country where we really have a hard time knocking deer numbers down. And... So if you could give guys financial incentive to, to knock them down in some of these suburban areas, whatever it might be, may that be a way to deal with this? And I just think in some cases, well, there might be cases where our thinking might have to evolve in that. And I don't know if it's not happening anytime soon. I don't doubt it would happen anytime soon. But I guess I'm one thing I liked about the, that um, the, the work I did in that from my work in um, talking to people in Sweden. One interesting nugget I found was that. Seventy percent of of Swedes have eaten or eat wild meat every year. Seventy percent of them. Mm. And I've looked around and I found some information for our country. And the best data I could find in our country is that about forty two percent of Americans in a typical year will eat some kind of wild animal. So that's so, higher than I, I would have guessed. guessed way yeah. lower than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so again, you know, this, no research is perfect. You know, as like we talked about earlier with populations, you know. You never know how accurate all that stuff is, but I found it interesting how much more those Swedes, and plus, if you buy if you buy um, hunter killed meat in Sweden, you're paying a real premium price for it. So what that does in, in their mind is that, man, you want wild game, you're gonna pay a you're gonna pay a price for it. Yeah. And but then they then, but then they put a value on it, and that's really valuable to them. So that when they can get it free, they think, oh man, I just scored. And so they really have this high appreciation of, of wild game that I'm not sure a lot of people in our country share, and which, which worries me. And I don't know if that. No, I'm tracking. I'm tracking you there, and I and I agree that that is the issue. So so that's an upside. Mm-hmm. Some things that here, when I wrote you that I don't agree with it, it was a couple of things. Um, I don't know you're not like a real vocal advocate of this. You were just no. exploring the idea, right? Exactly. Um, one. I think that like places, I mean, if you just look historically, places that now think they have this permanent problem with high deer numbers probably will not prove to have a permanent problem with high deer numbers. I agree. These things fluctuate wildly. So to go and like rewrite uh, uh, sort of the, the to, to rewrite the underpinnings of our wildlife conservation success, which was the decommodification of wildlife mm-hmm. 
and getting rid of market hunting, which saved American wildlife. Mm-hmm. To to try to address like a temporary problem that by some estimates isn't even really a problem, um, by radically altering how we perceive and manage wildlife in America it just seems to me like like a, a kind of an overshot, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like way too much gun. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Doug. So I'm in the County Deer Advisory Committee here for Richland County, and one of the things that came up as we've been talking about reducing the deer population was, well, I only use one deer, and you want to give me four tags, what are we going to do with that? And the donation system doesn't seem to be working that well. And I you know, I have a handful of people that I give uh, – uh, that I give venison to, I'll take it to the locker. I mean, I, I don't generally cut up deer for other people, so I'll take it to the locker and they'll pay the fee and they'll go and pick it up. And so at the County Deer Advisory Committee, <clears throat> people were, you know, asking about, well, how do you how do you have this list of people? And a young man in his late 20s, I guess, stands up and says, you know what I'll do? I'll put a spreadsheet together of people who are, and we can advertise it on social media or whatever, and we'll address that problem by here are hunters who, uh, or you can sign up and say, I'd like to have some venison, but I'm not a hunter. Mm-hmm. And then we, we can make that connection rather than like, you know, feed the hungry or, you know, those sort of things, but given it to the food pantry you know, or in addition to that. Yeah. Um, Great. Great. So I, I, and I, so there's the answer sort of to the temporary problem. Yeah. Right? Use it. Yeah. I'm all for a little bit of philanthropy. Yeah. Um, Another problem I see with it is it brings in the commodification. Okay, so the commodification of wildlife. And then you're going to also further commodify access. So I usually try to look at things. You know, like I'll oftentimes ask myself, what's better for hunters and fishermen and wildlife, right? So when I'm looking at issues, and I could just see that of all of a sudden, um, these deer, are we're going back to the 18... 18- 70s and 80s all over again when we shot off all of our wildlife and sold it to eastern markets that all of a sudden the deer on my place are real valuable mm-hmm. i'll be you know there's no way that the neighbor kid that uh mows my lawn and all my cousins and shit are going to come over here and hunt like the old mm-hmm. days i'm letting this go on a profit deal and we're going to make some money on these deer yeah. and it's just going to be the same thing all over again man so you shouldn't have written that damn article <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the other thing I'd say, though, too, that it would might prevent what you're describing is that <clears throat> in our country, we're really buttoned down. You know, our, our our way of doing things compared to the way Sweden does it, where Sweden lets people just walk over and sell something and let it go. In our country, chances are we'd probably say, before we commercialize this, we got to get an inspection system. We got to get this. We got to do that. And we can't just let people start selling, walking up to the chaos bar up here and selling them venison burger. No. And that, that kind of thing. So we'd, there'd probably be so many different things. Because like in Sweden and Stockholm, from what I understand, is they, they don't have some big inspection system coming in there and checking that guy's um, saying, well, that's, you know. $25 a, a pound or whatever it might be in, in, in Sweden compared to ground beef, which is, you know, a fifth of that or a half of that. I don't think our country would um, go along with that. I think they'd want that's Our country likes to have everything so safe, everything so perfect yeah. to the point where it drives me we nuts. We would never do it in a clean, efficient way anyway. Yeah. So I, I just don't think it – I think it, we're a long ways from having that happen. But, but I really agree with you that um, 
I guess my worry as I look at deer these days, I think, well, in my lifetime, deer went from virtually low numbers. You know, when I started hunting back in the early 70s, there really weren't many deer in Wisconsin at that point. We did had some many severe hunt, severe winters, really tough hunting statewide. We had 71,000 killed in 1971. Well, we killed more of that with the bow and arrow nowadays. And now we're at this time of superabundance, and we have CWD, chronic wasting disease, moving through, you know, this area we're sitting right now. I, I really worry about where we're going to be with, with the white-tailed deer in a, in, a, in a couple more decades. Yeah. Yes. You know, uh, the great conservationist and writer jim poswitz says that uh you know we used to have a lot of we used to have a lot of crimes that we would commit against wildlife based on its scarcity right mm-hmm. he says now we're entering into a new thing where we um we have crimes of abundance meaning that that the greed comes back in mm-hmm. you know the greed the commodification the restricting of access you know, he says, these are all things that we're just learning, like, as a culture, we're learning how to deal with how good we have it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the response is, you know, to just put your arms around it and be like, mine, mine, mine. Yeah, you know? the daffy duck, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, Yanni, that was your, you got anything else? No. No, that was good. I like that. That was a good conversation. You glad you brought that up, huh? No, no, and, and the whole, the two hours we just had at the uh-huh. bat. Doug? Um, I've got to sit and and listen to you guys talk before. In fact, the first time that you and I met. To, to me and Dirk. Yeah. And the first time that Steve and I met, the first person I called when, when Steve came out here was, was Pat to say, hey, I had this uh, guy come and write her. I think you guys would uh, get along and, and uh, be, have some interesting conversations. And as I recall that that cold ass hunt that we had that God, yeah. uh, that first time we did and so it's uh gratifying for me to sit here and uh have the the folks who follow the, the podcast and 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 your show and everything um get to be in on one of those conversations because i've been involved with several of these with you guys spanning way back yeah well going back to 2010 or something like that yeah pat you got anything you'd like to add yeah um I think I told you in an email the other day because I listen to your podcast. I think I've listened to every podcast you guys have produced. 63 that, of them. Because I like them. And so I knew not to get caught caught off guard by um, coming in with a half-assed, you know, concluding thought. Yeah, you came, pre, you came pre-concluding. Yeah, because you, you always jump on guys who um, just say, well, thanks, Steve, for having me on. And the thing I was, but the thing I um, hearken back to with the time I've known you is that I really like the fact how you are reaching out to the non-hunters of this country the way you operate. It's just like straightforward. You don't apologize for being a hunter. You invite people into your world and show them what's why this matters and how this matters. You know, and the, the idea that, that the example you gave me in an article I wrote about seven years ago was that when you invite people into your home, most people come in and they don't know what to make of antlers like what we have in this room right now. And as beautiful as they are. Yeah. Like you and I can look around this room and we see the differences, the nuances of these different antlers. Oh, my wife, even though she's in that hall, she doesn't really get into that stuff. But when they can start realizing that each one of those deer up here has a story, each one of those deer up there has provided meat that has been consumed by the people in this room and outside and their families, they understand that 
Oh, that's hunting's not so bad, then because you you come across as a likable, normal person, a thinking, intelligent, caring person, and the story I always go back to that always was formative for, for my understanding of non-hunters is back in the seventies when when it was still popular to hitchhike. Everyone hitchhiked when I was first driving. I remember picking up a college girl. I was married, sixteen years old. And I was driving the, driving a little beater. When you picked her up, were you kind of thinking like, who knows? No, nah, she was old. No. She's a college girl, so she's older than me. I knew I didn't have, didn't have a chance yeah, to lie. And I was, I, I was shy as hell when I was, you know, a teenager. So I never, I was always scared of girls, basically. Yeah. But um, but I remember um, <laughs> I picked. I, she was hitchhiking down on the UW Madison campus. I picked her up, and I just come back from hunting out east of town and, and I had two dead rabbits on the console between our bucket seats in this old GTO. Yeah, I'm tracking. Yeah. And she looks down and sees these two dead rabbits lying there, you know, between our seats and she says, did you just shoot those? You know, because she, she was obviously, you know, she knew something about hunting. I said, so yeah, I was out hunting out by Sun Prairie and got, got these rabbits. And, she's, and the first question she asked them was, the second question was, are you going to eat them? I said, oh, yeah, I, I love eating rabbits. She says, oh, okay then. <laughs> and, and, I, and that's really, I think, where most people are. If you make use of that animal you kill, they're, they're all for it. And I, I always stuck with me, that, that, um, that woman's question, and then knowing I was being judged by how I answered it. Luckily, yep. I, I answered it you know, the way she was hoping I'd answer it. I, I didn't kill those rabbits just for joy, just for the, you know, the excitement, whatever. I went yep. home and I ate them. Our buddy, the historian Randall Williams, um, I've had this conversation with him a number of times where he says that uh, he talks about how hunters have a persecution complex. Yeah. He says there are a, a small minority of Americans hunt. A smaller minority of Americans are vehemently opposed to hunting. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of Americans are just just in the middle. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're like, yeah. They, they're not yep. particularly bothered by it. They don't well, engage in it. The, the, the first time I heard you <laughs> in your head, but in the in your average hunter's head, it's like stem against us, man. Oh yeah, you know yeah. I mean? And and that's I remember the first time I heard you on the radio. I think it was on Gene Faraka's show on NPR. Maybe mm-hmm. is that? Do you remember that? Yeah, and. I didn't know who you were, but my wife was listening one day. She says, hey, this guy's going to be talking at, on hunting at 5 o'clock. And my expectation, honestly, was that, you know, I've been around talking about hunting for, as I put in my job for, at that point, probably about 25, almost 30 years already. And I thought, oh, God, some, some guy's going to get on national public radio and talk about, well, if we don't hunt the deer, they'll, get, they'll start starving, they'll get diseases. <laughs> we need to balance the population. We got to balance the population. Yeah. And... All those kind of trite things that people have been saying for years, and I always would always grind me about that was that. But that's not why you hunt. You don't see yourself as a pest control officer. You don't see yourself as <laughs> some guy who's doing the the world of service by being out there. You hunt because it's fun, and you're getting something out of it that's worthwhile to you personally. Yeah. And I and I and I never feel like I have to explain to people why I hunt because I think, well, shit, trying to explain to people why I love my wife. That's hard, you know, and you soon start ticking off the different things that you love about your wife. But before long, it sounds almost trivial. Yeah, guys that just use the like the controlling overabundant, like I need to do it because they're overpopulated. I'm like, if you went out to the farmer's place that you hunted on and said, "Hey, man, me and my buddies, we're here to help you out. 
Like, I'm real concerned about your agricultural practice. Now, I understand you got any number of problems out here. I'm here to help you. Most farmers are not going to be like, son, thing I need most from you is to go out and hunt them bucks. <laughs> no, they're going to be like, grab a shovel. I got, I got just yeah. the thing for yeah. you boys <laughs> if you're here to help me out. Well, this was just one of those fun things in life that happened once in a while. You know, I, so I listen to that radio, and, I, and then I get, your, your show's done, your interview's done. And I said to my wife, that guy's pretty smart. I like that. And then I promptly forgot your name. And I, you know, and then, then about, it couldn't have even been a, a couple months later, Doug lets me know that you're coming out here. And I, I finally started to connect. That's the guy I heard on the public radio show that one day. And then I go and I, I read your books. And I said to my wife, you got to read this guy's books. I said, this, you'll like this. And my wife, Penny, she's from, from New Jersey. She'd never, she'd never, her family, Jewish people had never met a hunter in their life till I came into their life. And to, to your observation about people's attitudes, they didn't have an attitude toward hunters because they didn't, they didn't know any hunters. That no. was a foreign concept to them. Why would, they, why would they even think about hunters and hunting? And so when they saw this guy coming into, into their world and they see pictures of their pregnant daughter out in the garage helping me cut up a deer, <laughs> I think they thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, something yeah. new going on. Yeah. So I, same old boring shit happens every day. Then some some guy comes and cuts a deer up. It's fun. Yeah, and 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 that that and that fun thing too is I think they could relate to it because um, Penny's mother, good Jewish name like Goldie, she was still in those days going in in New York City going to fish markets, bringing home whole fish like bigger than your bluegills out here today. Got gutting them and cleaning them and and doing all the things to make them ready because they understood that you know that's, this isn't off. Not all food in New York comes in in in, in wrappers, you know. It's yeah. all you got to yourself. So, I I thought that was for me uh, an, another eye opening experience where I got to meet people who didn't hunt, and they didn't. You, if you go after those people and start acting like it's us against them, well, they're definitely turned off then. Yeah, you know, they, they think, what the hell's your attitude? Yeah, like, I didn't realize that we were in a fight, but yeah. now that you yeah, right, now that you're right. making me aware that we are, it's right. kind of pissing me yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, and you can't blame them if somebody comes after them and makes them feel inadequate for for not caring about their particular activity or anything. What what kind of bullshit's that? Yeah. So that, know, that, that's that's my concluding. No, thought. that's a good concluder. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Now. I often, in, in my old age, I, I, I tell people, like, uh, if you like, like, generally, if you like to read someone's work, you know, you don't want to meet them. Because they're never going to, like, you, you don't live up, right? No one lives up to them mm -hmm. selves on the page. And, I, and I've been fortunate to read, to meet a lot of writers that I really admired and, uh, and usually walk away from it wishing it hadn't happened. Huh. Wow. But I like knowing you and having known you as long as I did because, uh, it's fun to have the experience, which happens to me often, to be to, that an article will catch my eye, okay. And um, and I'll be reading it. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I'll be reading it, and I'm like, God, this is good, right? And I'm like, fuck, it's Pat. I love <laughs> yeah. that. Oh, thank you. And I love thank it. You. Yeah, that, that, that's the that's deer. The deer selling thing. I didn't put it together right away because, mm -hmm. like, you know, like most. Yeah, you just don't. Writers get pissed if people don't look at who wrote something. But like, when you buy a movie, do you go like, "Oh, what's produ what right. studio put right. this movie out?" It's like right. it's like you know, most people like don't engage things that way. Novels are different, but like just reading 
when you're reading like a bunch of magazine articles in a magazine. So I'll oftentimes back check. Like I'll be impressed substance and execution. And I'd be like, who wrote this? Mm-hmm. Oh, Derek. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. Good. I, 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 don't, I don't take it personally when so when someone like last week I was uh, I I do I do some running articles too now for the Green Bay newspaper. Do you really? Yeah. And this is like running around. I, running down the road yeah, twenty I, miles. I, yeah, I, I I don't know why, but late in life I've just discovered running. And but I wrote this article last week about um basically the importance of having a strong core, which basically is everything from your crotch up to your neck. You know, if you don't have a good strong core, good strong butt, all these kind of things, you can't you can't be much of a runner. You gotta get in shape first before you can be, become a decent runner. Well, I wrote this article and I thought it was pr- pretty good. And I, Dog, you paying attention? Well, then I. <laughs> but, but then I. What, what, what was, what was <laughs> Doug, Doug suffered a sprinting injury yesterday. <laughs> but, Go ahead, Pat. What, what was fun about though was that I about a, a week goes by, and I'm talking to a guy who's uh I was I was actually getting my 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 um my running stride analyzed by a real real um analysis done on it because I was having injury problems. I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna end this stuff once and for all. I'm gonna stop being injured. I'm gonna figure out what what I'm doing wrong and whatever. And this guy's telling me this great article he read there day. He really liked it. The importance of the core. Is that right? And I said, well, I wrote that. And he goes, God, you're right. That is you. You know? And he sees my names and puts it up, finally puts it together. And I That's got to feel good. Yeah, it feels great. And I'd be lying. If, you know, what, but what? imagine if he said, like, you know, there's just so much misinformation out there, Pat. Just matter of fact, just the other day I was reading some article. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've had that happen. <laughs> some <laughs> Yahoo late in life jogging jackass. Exactly. Goes killing all kinds of innocent deer, which I happen to know. Yeah. And he's saying, yeah. Yeah. So it's good that he liked it. Yeah. That, more than any other reason, is the reason why you should try to do good work. Yeah. And well, not shit work. That's that's one thing I always tell, you know, I get, get invited to speak to college classes once in a while, and, and my my um my daughters used to volunteer me for various class projects to come in and talk to people. And the point I always made about writing, because it's a very visible craft, is that you never know who's reading you. So make everything you write your best effort. Don't just do a half-assed effort. And that, but I think that applies to anyone in any any job. You never know who's watching. And so to me, when I when I when I sit down and write, I always figure at some point someone's gonna pick up that newspaper, pick up that magazine, and read it. And, to, and a lot of times too, people don't write. You can't expect people to read bylines. They're, just, they're going straight into the article. Mm-hmm. And if you don't catch them in that first couple of paragraphs, they're out. And they're on. They never look to see who wrote it. And, and But it's usually people like yourself, and I, I do the same thing. I'll read the article. And if it's really good, I'll look at the name. A lot of times you won't recognize it. But then if you see that name two or three times, it starts sinking in. Yeah. And so, but so it has to be not only good one time, but good every time. And then sometimes topics don't interest people and they won't read it and that's fine uh, you can't, my my wife doesn't read everything I write either really <laughs> well the worst mistake I ever made in my writing career is about 30 years ago I asked my wife one time what she thought of a column I wrote and she, her honest response was uh, you've written better yeah and I never I've never asked her since then what she thought of anything I've written but you know a lot of times she'll tell me oh I like that column today whatever it might be but, so she'll stumble into it and read it yeah well, like I, I um that my news my newspaper column you know appears in our local newspaper now, so she sees it. But it gets delivered to the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every Saturday morning, she sees my my smiling my smiling gap tooth. Yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Pat, thanks for coming on, you man. Bet. Thank you for having me. We'll have to have you back. Talk more about um, 
you know, what do you do when it's moon when it's moony out? <laughs> well, see if your opinions have changed. Well, I was going to tell you though, Steve. I really meant what I said about the way you're handling yourself. The the, the final final thought I'll make in that is that you know, this is your tw- final concluding. Yeah, twenty five years ago, I wrote a concluding concluder. Yeah, I wrote a column twenty five years ago, and it was basically the whole idea that we don't we do not have any hunters out there talking on hunting's behalf who are famous for being hunters. And I think I look around now and I see guys like you, Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, guys who are making their mark out there because they they have gotten to a certain stage in life, stage in their careers where they're recognized as, as smart hunters who are doing something for not just hunting, but overall conservation efforts. And you guys meet people who, who can communicate to other people outside our little circles of, of hunters. And I look at guys like Joe Rogan and I don't, I don't listen to Joe's podcast as carefully as I listen to yours. It's because they're so long and I'm, I'm always, you know, running from one topic to the next, but I think it's because of those kind of contacts you establish and you network with and that you enjoy. There's smart people who can, you know, reach an audience that we, as I can't reach. And I think uh, we should appreciate that. And thank you guys for doing that. And I, and I really say that with you know deep sincerity. So thank, thank you, man. It's very yeah. kind of you. Oh, you bet. That's the best concluding thought. Take a pointer from that, Doug. Next time you go to do a concluding thought. You didn't like my concluding thought? <laughs> that was good. Well, that's why I, no, pa- seriously, I passed because pa- oh, I knew ahead. Pat would have to. Oh. Seriously, thank you for coming on, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're going to have you back to talk more about all this stuff. It's always fun. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Durkin. Find his writing. Just look him up on the internet. Right? Oh, yeah. You just type in Pat Durkin Outdoors and you'll find a lot of stuff. Or open your, uh, if you live in Wisconsin and the newspaper comes banging up against your screen door, open it up and see oh, if Pat's please. in there. Yeah, support local journalism. That's that's my my um, best wish for people. And uh, if you live in Michigan, go figure out what watershed you live in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.